0: Today's episode is brought to you by Ben Shattuck's Six Walks in the Footsteps of Henry David Thoreau, which charts six journeys taken by Shattuck across the New England landscape, each inspired by a walk of Thoreau's taken years ago, says Hernan Diaz. By walking in Thoreau's footsteps, Ben Shattuck ends up following the long trail, left by wandering thinkers and writers like Rousseau, Mir, Valser, Benjamin, and Solnit. Along the way, Six Walks offers a moving meditation on nature and history and what our precarious place between these two realms may be, adds Nina McLaughlin. In painterly prose, he brings us along on his walks and proves the best sort of guide, curious, open to the chance encounter, deeply attuned to rhythms natural and personal and to the strange joys to be found even in periods of pain. Most of all, he reminds us every step of the way of what's on offer every time we walk out the door. Six Walks is out now from Tin House. I'm really excited to share this conversation with Karen Balin. Her four books, each in and of themselves, but also I think particularly in how they improbably relate to each other, raised so many questions about writing and representation that are super interesting and I think also really generative. And the books as reading experiences are wild on the sentence level, on the level of structure, the imagery and language, and how they're able to unleash humor in the least likely of places. When I realized that Karen's latest book was coming out with Dorothy, and that I was also doing an interview with the writer of Dorothy's other release this spring. I reached out to them to see if we should do them consecutively and celebrate it in some way. There are a lot of presses I love and trust. Wave Books, New Directions, Coffeehouse, Grey Wolf. Too many to name, really. Ugly Duckling Press, Action Books, Nightboat, and of course Tin House. But this is just naming a few. But when I think of Dorothy, I think of a conversation I had with my partner, Lucy. I think we had just finished watching the movie The Mirror by Tarkovsky, which was maybe the sixth of his seven films that we had seen, each one feeling like an important experience to have. And afterwards, we were asking ourselves, what directors had perfect track records? Likely any director who had had a limited number of films to even entertain this question, but where every one of those films was formidable. At the time, I think we could only come up with Tarkovsky and Lee Chang-dong, the Korean director of such amazing films as Poetry and Secret Sunshine and Peppermint Candy, and one of the few directors where we've seen everything by him, everything being five or six films, but all great films. I'm sure there are others, but I bring this up because It is in this light, I think, of Dorothy Project, a project that puts out only two books each year, both books by women writers. And it's so incredibly well curated that each release feels like an event and one that is met with both excitement and confidence, confidence around the judgment of Daniela Marty, which is impeccable. As a testament to that, what, what Dorothy sent me to offer to new supporters as part of this Dorothy episode doubleheader was a box of all 22 of their books published to date, which I opened with a sense of awe for how gorgeous they all looked separately and together. So I had the pleasure of having the task to figure out how to create bundles from these 22 books to offer to you, the listener who has not quite yet made the step to listener-supporter. Everything from Renée Gladman's four books of speculative fiction to Natalie Léger's award-winning trio of books, each the story of a female artist against the backdrop of her own life and research, to a triptych I created of surrealistic works, the complete stories of Leonard Carrington, Wild Milk by Sabrina Ora Mark, and The Tiger Syndrome by Christina Rivera Garza. And really a lot more, from Rosemary Waldrop's only novel to writings by Marguerite de Ross that have never before appeared in English. You can find five different bundles of various sizes and themes that I created from these 22 books up at the show's Patreon site at patreon.com slash between the covers. But as a testament to this probably being the best time ever to become a new supporter. Karen's book before her latest, the hybrid medical narrative memoir, Blackfishing the IUD, which we actually talk quite a bit about today as well, that book's publisher has since gone under. and So there are a limited number of these books in the world. And Karen sent me five signed copies, which are available as well. As if that were not enough. As you are about to learn, today's book's main protagonist, named Iris, has rheumatoid arthritis. And with it, she has two very painful feet. Feet she has named after the grumpy men in Flaubert's final unfinished book, Bouvard and Pécuchet, And these feet talk to each other throughout Karen's book about history and philosophy. For the bonus audio, Karen talks about Flaubert's book and then reads to us from Bouvard and Pécochet. But I suspect even if we didn't have this largesse from Dorothy to offer, even if we didn't have these signed copies of Blackfishing the IUD, even if we didn't have Karen's bonus reading, that just hearing this conversation, this extended conversation that ranges widely and goes deep, that it might cross your mind during it or afterwards that you want to see more of this in the future. To become part of the Between the Covers community and to check out all the goodies, head over to patreon.com slash between the covers. And now, none other than Karen Balin. These stories are about the id unleashed.
1: They're about the wildness contained in all of
0: Stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. had no idea how to
1: write a novel. Didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself.
0: Good morning, and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naaman, your host. Today's guest writer, Karen Balin, could be described most simply as a writer of prose. You could say she is the writer of memoir, of novels, of autofiction, of collaborative fiction, of medical narratives, though where each of these categories begins and ends becomes harder to ascertain the more you read her. Her work, by her own description, often touches upon and is threaded through with feminist themes. And increasingly, both her teaching and writing is informed by a disability poetics. Balin has an MFA from the University of Montana and a PhD in creative writing from the University of Utah and is currently a professor of writing at the Massachusetts College of Liberal Arts and editor-at-large for Full Stop magazine. She's also the recipient of a McDowell Fellowship. Her chapbook, Americans, Guests, or Us, was published by Diagram in 2012. and her debut novel, the University of Pennsylvania, was a finalist for Fence's Modern Prose Prize, judged by Rivka Galchin and winner of the 2013 Noemi Press Book Award for Fiction, a book that prompted Ander Monson to say, The University of Pennsylvania is unhinged. Just the thing to remove your skin. Everything will feel intense because it is. How many books can reroute your dreams like this? She's also the author of the literary nonfiction or perhaps autofiction anti-travelogue Spain from Rescue Press, a book Vicky now describes as a genre bending document of the narrator's female migratory writing life. Through the wounded, binoculative, molested soul of her nipples. Spain is stuffed with poetic axing, bicycling, pussying, travel logging, rilking, claire reading, anti-Spaining. This highly inventive, highly imaginative book relentlessly disrupts the contemporary order of memoir writing. Balin goes to the moon and back, and is not afraid to be scandalous or poetic or whimsical or ethical at a moment's notice. Next came Balin's collaborative medical narrative and memoir, Blackfishing the IUD, about gendered illness, medical gaslighting, the dismissal of women's self-reporting of their symptoms, and the copper IUD's potential to trigger chronic autoimmunity. Hilary Plum says of Blackfishing the IUD, Love does leave you open, Karen Balin proves, in this heartbreaking, book-breaking work. Balin opens her memoir of illness to the voices of others harmed by the IUD, a medical device that makes the writer's daily living and thinking into a story of autoimmune disease. Balin and others who know the risks of being heard and treated as women, include us in their generous acts of rage, empathy, gratitude, and information. Reading and writing are witch work, transforming the isolation of suffering into a tender and common ground. This book reminds us that our bodies are sites of language we can trust and love and offer in forms more radical than we know. Along with the book, Karen created and hosted the podcast of the same name, Blackfishing the IUD, with guests from Tyrese Coleman to Amy Berkowitz. Karen Balin is here today on Between the Covers to talk about her latest book from Dorothy called Revenge of the Scapegoat, a book of fiction, a novel that somehow also feels deeply connected to each of the books that come before, regardless of genre. Catherine Lacey says of Revenge of the Scapegoat, Animated with the moxie and wit of Acker and Tillman, Karen Balin is one of the most bizarre and fearless writers of her generation. Revenge of the Scapegoat is a surreal take on the tendency people have to damage those we claim to love and the way parental cruelty renders the world unrecognizable. Kirkus adds, Though the narrative involves childhood trauma, domestic abuse, addiction, medical exploitation, and the Holocaust, Iris's wholly unique voice makes for a very funny work. This wide-ranging, idea-driven novel leaves the reader with much to think about, deftly provoking questions about the nature and ethics of trauma and contemporary art. Publishers Weekly and its starred review says, Balin lands on an infectious and perfect blend of cultural criticism, wry writing advice, and magnificently weird storytelling. And finally, Stephen Dunn says, Revenge of the Scapegoat made me bounce laugh so hard my cheeks and belly kept jiggling while reading the pains. Welcome to Between the Covers, Karen Balin.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Well, before we talk about Revenge of the Scapegoat, I wanted to ask you if you see your four books as related to each other. Um, I know they're discrete projects that stand alone to nonfiction and to fiction, but so many things travel through all of them, not just the themes. For instance, the way different systems gaslight people, whether they're medical systems or family systems and the way women and girls are often the victims of this in particular, um, inherited generational trauma, feminism, Judaism, these connect your books, but the quote-unquote characters also walk through your books too. And by that I mean we encounter your father in your fiction and your nonfiction, your mother in both, recognizably, the same in identifiable ways, but in different genres. Um, I know for sure that I'm going to make the mistake probably multiple times of referring to your main character in the new book as you. So I guess because of these porous boundaries, I I wondered how do you see these books, if at all, related to each other as they sort of spill from one to the next?
1: I I think I'm beginning to think about these books as a quartet. I think it's been helpful for me to think of them as a quartet for a couple of reasons, one of which is that because I actually would like to move on in some sense, just spiritually for myself. Life is long, hopefully, and so much of my spirit is fueled by coming out of the wreckage of my family life, coming out of the, the pain of, of those you know, particularly my adolescent years. There are different ways to categorize writers. Um, I love to think about some writers are writers of chapters. Some writers are writers of sentences. Some are paragraph writers. Um, and also like writers have different ages to them. Um, and I'm always attracted to the writer who's an adolescent. And I am I am a teenage writer. <laughs> I write from the place of my teenage self. Um, and that kind of fundamental feeling that I had as a teenager, which was of feeling very oppressed and gaslit and, and threatened and like scared and so triumphant and so full of ecstasy. I mean, I was like a really ecstatic teenager um, and that was my response. Mm-hmm. And I, all of these books were written in that state and that is the state of my writing. So it's sort of an interesting, um, hopeful problem that life is long. And I wonder if it will always work for me to like, plumb into that and like, just keep wringing that out, like what will become of me? What will become of my life? So it's been really helpful for me lately to think of these four books as being this quartet of coming out of this, uh, which of course was not all bad. Uh, And I don't mean to say it was, but coming out of something that completely um, made me feel like amazed that I came out of it. And um, I think all four of them talk really directly about having a sick mom. Um, You know, my mother became sick with multiple sclerosis when I was around 10 years old. And that was such a major aspect of my experience um, let alone hers, but certainly mine. And um, yeah, and you know, I, I came from a family where, you know, the father was, uh, you know, displayed viciousness or expressed viciousness, and um, and other things too. You know, these are you know multi dimensional situation, but um, those were just the big figures in my life. Um, and not just figures of like trauma, like processing figures, but figures of like ecstasy and energy and anger and like all of the things that make me feel alive. So I do think that one of the things that I'm going to be, I'm thinking about now, is how to feel alive as a writer without these figures, or if these figures are not um, the main point, or or actually like you know right in front of the text.
0: Well, it makes me think of your question that you posed to Sheila and in the conversation with Sheila about the rejected figure and how maybe there's there, when you keep mentioning the word ecstasy, it makes me think of how you were asking Sheila Hattie if, if the reject the person that was rejecting that keeps reappearing in her work was created things like clarity um, or, Energy in some other way. It sounds like maybe that's what you, I don't know if that was informing your question to her. I guess.
1: Sure. Yeah, I was. I'm. I was curious with her if she, um, yeah, just had sort of a like this paradoxical feeling of like the pain of rejection, but also knowing that she kind of needed or something in some way. Yeah. I I try to identify my. I asked her if it was her jouissance. I try to identify my own jouissance. Um. And I've been told that one cannot identify their own sense. it's kind of a thing about it. Mm-hmm. But uh, if I had to guess, mine is really built around um, lowering myself so that I feel that I could be or am being kicked in the face. And then slowly and steadily and perfectly across time, being so full of ecstasy and power and capacity that nothing else matters but I like have to lower myself first. And I wonder if people who know me were listening to this think, Oh yeah. <sighs> she does that all the time. It's really annoying. <laughs> I wish she wouldn't force me to debase her so she could feel good. Um, but I do, uh, that comes from my, that's my teenage position, right. Mm. That I felt imperiled in my home as a teenager and in, in, as a child, but particularly as a teenager and, um, Survived that situation through conjuring amazing feats of ecstasy. Um, so uh, that's what I'm still like, I guess.
0: Well, well, thinking still about these four books. Now we can call them a quartet. Um, and about this, and about the question of a genre. And I don't know how much you're thinking. You think about these questions, but at the end of Revenge of the Scapegoat, the latest book, which is a fiction or perhaps a fiction, (laughs) it has endnotes. And it says, for one, quote, for a nonfiction account of how my mom left her marriage and the suburbs after living with MS for decades, how she moved to the city and began life anew. See my previous book, Spain. And also, you have this endnote, for a nonfiction account of how the copper IUD triggered my first rheumatoid arthritis flare and how many IUD users experience depression, anxiety, joint pain, the early onset of autoimmunity, hair loss, heart palpitations, and other life-altering problems. See my previous book, Blackfishing the IUD. Both of these notes suggest to people who haven't read your most recent book yet that your mother and a character like you with IUD-triggered autoimmune disease, appear in the latest book in at least a somewhat fictionalized form. So I'm interested in hearing about how you decide when to write one versus the other. So for instance, one of the main origin points of the new book, the new fictional book, is, is receiving in real life from your father during the pandemic these letters that he wrote to you as a teenager that were super wounding to you at the time. And for some reason he sent to you again as an adult and which reopened that wound. This ultimately was one of the impulses to write revenge of the scapegoat. Um, So what were the considerations for you that would suggest fiction was the way to go, that it gave you the right tools to create art out of this very real very tangible real life thing.
1: Yeah. I feel even emotional now when you read the, um, particularly the note about my mom. It's really painful to me that, um, and I guess this is a spoiler alert, I don't know, but um, it's painful to me that she dies in Revenge of the Scapegoat. The figure of the sick mother dies. um, And it was really important for me to tell anybody reading the book that my mom is still alive, and um, and that there's a whole inverse to that story. But I wanted in this book to tell the story that is is the is the shadow story. The you know something that she said is that she would have died if she stayed in that house, and she saved herself and and really miraculously. I mean, she was like very disabled and incredibly fatigued from the MS, um, by the time she left this house, um, she's just—I'm in awe of the um, self-heroism, like of that act. She saved her. She saved her, but so good. Um, and it was so wild. It was just like really wild. This like woman who's mostly consigned to her bed all day has like found an apartment in the city and is somehow going to move her body to it. I mean, it was just a really amazing thing that happened when I was 19 years old. So in the book, um, Iris's mother dies when Iris is 19 years old. And I say in the book, she died of staying. And that is my kind of messed up way, I guess, to honor um, that my mom actually saved her life by not doing that. But this is the fictional, this is the fictional what if Mm -hmm. moment. Um, And then I will say about the other section uh, that you read where I point readers to blackfishing the IUD, that's important to me because I like to spend any opportunity I can to publicly say that if you're experiencing depression or anxiety or joint pain or heart palpitations or hair loss or eczema or all kinds of kind of system-wide issues, that you have just attributed to something else and you have an IUD, the IUD can cause local to systemic effects and it's doing that to a lot of people. Um, And I like to spend any opportunity to say that. And Danielle suggested we put that in the back of the book, Danielle Dutton, the editor of Dorothy. And and I was just thrilled because I, I want every opportunity to say that, but also it's sort of surreal to have written Blackfishing the IUD, which is about my interaction with the copper IUD, which instigated for me, my first rheumatoid arthritis flare. Um, And now I live with rheumatoid arthritis (laughs) because it's an autoimmune disease and that's how that works. Um, But something about writing and publishing a book makes you feel like it's over. Like you wrote it, I went, I did some readings. it's like, it's done. Like, I don't have RA anymore. Like I, like, I sealed it up in that book. And that's like, not true. <laughs> mm-hmm. Cause I, it's not true, but it almost made me feel that way. So I wanted to continue writing about my life with RA because, um, it, yeah, that illusion didn't, couldn't hold that. Um, so it needed to continue, but I think specifically to your question about, um, like why this is fiction, or why do I have a fictional impulse? I think that with all of my writing, I'm really interested in the sentence. And with this writing in particular, there was like an instigating sentence that was, there were a lot of different things that instigated it. There's a lot of different origin stories for the book, but one of them had to do with the sentence that I was kept on trying to use in a different short story. And that short story wasn't going very well, because it wasn't very interesting. And but the sentence, I was like in love with the sentence and it was just a really dense kind of very creative sentence. And so um, this book just felt like it was springing from my interest in those sorts of things. Um, another real origin for the book was about the, I was really journaling a lot about um, cows stepping on my heart, uh, which I did after I received these letters and I felt like my heart was so wounded, but so hard from being hurt. And I was like, I, a cow could step on my heart and I would be fine. And I kept on just feeling like the hard, like fucked up strength of my heart. And I kept on writing about cows stepping on it, not knowing what to do with it. Um, but that felt fictional. <laughs> and So, I mean, it's like, it was I was in a pretty fantastical space. Um, I don't feel that uh, like devoted. I don't feel devoted to genre. Like I, I often tell my students because they often have genre anxiety, like we, what genre is this supposed to be in? And I think things are prose is like 100% fiction and 100% nonfiction at all times. So I don't, I just don't have like a lot of like allegiance to it, or uh, you know, I won't care if you think that Iris is me. And certainly by the end of the book, I gesture really strongly that she is. Yeah. Um, so I don't really care.
0: Well, let me let me ask you about this through the lens of your father. Um, so, for instance, in your in your nonfiction book, which. Here is another way you trouble genre. So your nonfiction book, Spain, which you wanted to be referred to as an autofictional book, but then through the publishing process was called a nonfiction book. Um, There are many mini chapters titled Nipple where our narrator returns over and over again to the time her father, posing for a photo with her, reaches around her back and around her torso and touches her nipple. And that book engages with the Claire Denis film, White Material, where Isabelle Huppert's character puts an axe in her father's back and the character in Spain says, what a good ending. And similarly, in in Blackfishing, the IUD, we have your father again as himself. But also we have a fictional father. The Borges story, Emma Zuns, appears where a woman avenges her father's possible suicide. The the reasons for him killing himself are are unclear, Um, but she kills uh, the Jewish mill owner that employed him as an act of vengeance. And then in your first novel, your first fiction, we have a father who is a murdered factory owner. But here in the latest book, you said that the letters your father sent you not in the book you don't say this, but outside of the book, you say that the letters he actually sent you, they gave you the form for this book, for this fiction, that contains the real reproduction of those letters, perhaps, in them. Um, it's like, It seems as if the real reproduction of the letters are within this fiction. Um, but talk to us about the letters, both with regards to the book and the book's form, but also perhaps I guess around the form of a family because it feels like the, one of the main things the book is doing is looking at the family form and that perhaps, or at least I'm reading into this, that the letters giving you a form have something to do with that. So, So speak to us a little bit about the letters themselves.
1: One thing I will say just to, I feel like this is an important detail to correct you about Spain um, what occurs in Spain, and I will say in my own life, is, is that I I met up with my my father for a brunch, and as he was greeting me, he reached out and um, and touched my nipple. Um, it was not during the he didn't do a full reach around. Okay. So I don't know like why I would even cry. Like, does that make it better? Like, I don't, I don't know. know
0: why I'm imagining that's the case, but
1: <laughs> there that's... was like another part where there was a little bit of, um, there was another little inappropriate part of the photograph, but.
0: So I'm not inventing it entirely. Okay. No, just no. mixing the two up.
1: Yeah. I okay. don't know. I just felt like. I needed let's... To...
0: <laughs> Speaking of nonfiction, let's. let's... Yeah.
1: But even with that, in Spain, I mean, the narrator, presumably me, is like very plagued by wondering if that happened. Like, did it happen? Like, I think it happened. Like, it's like, could this have happened? You know, there was like a lot of, anyway. Um, With the letters, um, the letters are really the beginning of the novel, of Revenge of the Scapegoat. Um, They're like kind of the instigating thing. Like Iris is sitting at the cafe in Philadelphia um, shout out to good karma love that place um she's sitting at good karma in philly and um she's clutching like she's like holding this package like her like her horrid little poodle that she has with her with these letters and they're like deeply disturbing her and not only have they disturbed her but they've reordered like family relations because she's now in a fight with her brother about like kind of, how did these letters get to me? Did you give our father my address? Does he even know I'm living in Philadelphia still? I don't want him to know anything. There's just sort of this whole argument that begins because of the letters. Um, and that's all very nonfiction. I mean, I received these letters and then proceeded to get into a fight with my family about, about them. And I was disappointed that my address had been shared um, because I just didn't want those something like that to appear. I keep on thinking about these letters. There's actually a film that I, I talk about in Spain, but I I try to Google the plot of this film. All, I try to find out what this film was all of the time and I can't find it, but I saw this like art film in like 2005, it was like this Argentinian art film. And in it, there was a scene that I just never forgot where a daughter, a, da- a daughter has a father who is a famous poet who dies and she is the custodian of his papers and his private journals and everything, but he's very famous. Um, and so different people are very interested in like getting the journals from her and she wants to read them first. And she reads a very damning page where he says that he wishes he'd never had her and that he she has only disappointed him and he's disgusted by her and she rips out the page before um, she can, anybody sees it. And she has to hide it cause they're coming to talk to her. And so she hides it like in her, in her outfit, like on her thigh. And then there's a scene when they leave and she takes the page, the ripped out page off of her thigh and her stomach and her whole stomach thigh area there is like burning red. And the letters have seared her mm-hmm. um, or, or that, that writing of her father has so injured her that even just the contact of the paper. Um, and I've just never forgotten that um, amazing scene in this film I can't find anything about. Um, but that was what it was like for me when I received these letters. I, I just, they really uh, got me in this really kind of trauma cyclical kind of way. Um, I couldn't believe, I couldn't believe them. They were just like such proof to me, and and they aren't um, they aren't presented as themselves in the book. Uh, There is a a fictional element to them, which in part has to do with how um, copyright works. Um, Letters somebody sends you, you don't own them, even though they've been brazen enough to send them to you. Interesting. Yeah. So I felt some anxiety around that and uh, wrote fictional impressions of the letters, but I tried to be really, uh, I tried to be very faithful to them, uh, which was actually difficult because I wanted to make them worse because I somehow wanted to make them um, sound as bad as they made me feel. Mm -hmm. Um, But I tried not to do that because the letters are strangely polite they're strangely orderly. They sound very wounded themselves. Like there's many ways in which these letters are incredibly non-eventful to that to the general reader. And um, they
0: were event. They were eventful for me. They were. They were like I. Re- so we're gonna talk. I'm gonna fold in some of the conver- the extended conversation you had with Sheila, which is going to appear in edited form in the Paris Review. And I know she found them less remarkable in terms of how horrible they are based in comparison to Iris's response to them. But um, I found them really horrible myself. Um, And just the fact of the equalizing of the wounded parent as if you weren't a child um, and that somehow they could be put on the same level and that the responsibility being placed on you that the family was falling apart um, and to justify all of his choices, that if somehow you had been different, he wouldn't be leaving his wife, disabled wife and family. Um, I don't know. I was, I, I, I found them quite eventful.
1: Oh, I was kind of, I think, yeah, Sheila did say, they seem kind of, you know, raising a teenager is hard. They seem almost reasonable. She didn't only say that, you know. No, of course
0: she, not. I'm not. Yeah. She them, so. No, she's she. It's mo- much more nuanced than that.
1: Yeah, but I, but when I first got the letters, and I did. I mean, I have so much rage. I'm such like I'm have a lot of anger, and I mean that's like one of my ways that I have energy in this life. Um, and I did have that like. I will never burn these letters. I will burn them into a novel. This is my revenge. Like I felt full of anger, um, and, and incredible tenderness and all these things. But, um, but then my horror was nobody can ever see these letters because if anybody says anything besides that they are, they are horrible, then I will die. Like (laughs) it's such like a, an attachment to what they've Did to me psychically at that age that it was very hard for me to like imagine sharing them but I guess I do as an artist like that's one of the things I try to practice like doing things that are very terrifying and I want there to be stakes in the things that I do and I care about that so I just knew that that was one of the things like I had to do I had to do this terrifying thing and I do and as I said to Sheila it was like exposure therapy it really was like I had to, I went from these letters searing, searing into my body, like feeling so tender. I went from that to like, I don't know, just going back and forth over however many emails with Danielle being like, let's change this word here. Let's, you know, (laughs) whatever you do when you're editing a book and considering it not in a nonfiction way. Right. And I would never, I've I have no interest in like a memoirist kind of version of this story this idea of like carefully revealing the importance of these letters I know I'm speaking about how important this is to me but I have no expectation actually that a reader of mine would like invest in the importance of like my like bad suburban dad like I don't like I want my reader to like I don't know. I want my reader to like read me the way it feels to like listen to such a good album or something and just like feel the way you want to feel in your veins because you're reading a sentence that feels like the right little skid of anger and and coolness or whatever it is that is your kind of song too. That's all I really want. Like, I don't want to like, there's no lesson to learn. There's nothing like I want to unpack with my reader. Like I'm horrified by being like humiliated by these letters or like, I don't know there's all kinds of horror for me, but I don't, um, oh, I I don't like that about memoir, this idea of like, I'm delivering this thing that must be unpacked and held by you too. Like, it's not actually something that I want the reader to hold, which is I think going back to your question, which you did a wonderful job of saying is formal, it's a formal question. And so the letters are so charged and they they, um, allow a plot to occur. They allow something to happen and they, it happens around such a charge and whether that's for the reader, maybe it is, but it's certainly for me. It's like a charge of a risk. Something's at stake. Something's really horrible for me. So the letters have the charge and I need something to ride on so that I can just describe what the world feels like and what grass is like and, and what it feels like to be alive.
0: Yeah. Well, I had a hard time time figuring out where to begin as an entry point to the book in this conversation, whether to start with story or whether to start with language. And you've already intimated um, about your love of the sentence and your love of language. And I I think part of why it's hard for me is because they feel really inseparable in your work. The language that you use, also your investigation of language, and then the story itself. But what I'd love to do is have you recount one story within the book as an entryway ultimately into language? And then I'll try to bring it back out again into story. So, in this family system, Iris is scapegoated, and the brother, Kenneth, aligns himself with the family narrative. So, ultimately, against his sister, and ultimately, I think, reinscribes the scapegoating mainly coming from the father and he he quite literally says in the novel the father that iris is ruining things within this family ecosystem and instructs kenneth to hit his sister with his mother's cane the cane she has because of her multiple sclerosis but i'm interested in another moment when kenneth asks if he can use his sister's box for a school project <laughs> and she says no so could you could you maybe do a little recap of that um that mini story for us as an entryway into something I want to ask you. Um, Tell us about the box, (laughs) what it means to Iris and and what happens next.
1: Well, Iris as a young child, um, and then I should say, she's recounting this story to somebody named Caroline. And she's talking about a moment in her life, in her family, where she first wanted to murder her family members. And I do want to say, I actually don't have a lot of, as I said, a lot of propriety around fiction or nonfiction, but because I'm publishing this into a world in which my family members do exist and are living here on this earth with me, um, and I've said this to them, that is pure fiction. I did not fantasize about killing my family members, but I love the uh, figure of the murderous child so much in in like lots of different media (laughs) and horror films and things like that. So I just wanted Iris to be a murderous child, but I I actually felt very sensitive and made sure, especially with my mother and sister, that they knew that I, I don't know if it would be wrong to fantasize in that way, but I, 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 did want to tell them that I, that that was me loving the horror genre and, and like the figure of the murderous child for all, for all the reasons somebody like me might. Right. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so this is Iris's reason for first wanting to murder her family. And um, she has a box and it is a special box, the way that maybe you have had a special box when you were a child uh, where you put a prism and a leaf and some of your most favorite stickers and these sorts of things, and she, uh, it's like her little uh, philosopher's hut, this box, and, um, but then uh, her brother needs it for a school project, and, uh, and she is sort of forced by the family to offer it up, like, empty your box of its special contents, and this box goes to school with your brother, and then the brother is um, told by somebody at school that, For the special project the brother must write in pen his name on the top of the box Um, and the box is made of this very soft wood so he writes in pen in a way that like carves his name into the top of the box and then it is returned to iris uh marked with uh, her brother's name on it um and uh, this is a a lasting memory for iris as somebody as the scapegoat who holds all memories and the scapegoat's like the giver. <laughs> like you got to like remember all of the things nobody else will.
0: I promise I'm gonna come back and to this to the story, but um, it's gonna seem like I'm departing from it for a minute. Um, many people mention your sentences. Uh, it, uh, Sheila Heti talks about how there's a sense of adventure in your sentences, so much poetry in them, and a playfulness around making up words. Amazing words. Like I, I think one of your favorites was "moon butterus," which is also one of mine too. Um, You and Sheila sent me the sixteen thousand word unedited version of your conversation about this book, which is slated to appear in the Paris Review in a much more edited form. So I'm quoting from behind the curtain when she says, "I usually prefer plain writing." because I hate to see the writer's labor or work, and simple sentences hide it well, but your work seems effortless with all its untraveled, complicated, poetic, hilarious twists and turns. I think that is what immediately excited me about it. So much writing that is intricate feels labored over, whereas yours is like skipping down the street. But she's just one of many people, um... For instance, Ander Monson, when he says, Karen Balin's prose isn't like other people's prose or other people's anything. Her engine is the sentence, and it runs on fuel from other worlds. Or Joanna Rocco, who says, No one writes like Karen Balin. If Angela Carter got co-mingled with Gary Lutz in Laura Glenham's Miraculating Machine, they might have produced the kinds of sentences found in the University of Pennsylvania clausal bell ringers that rewire your brain. So on the first page of your first novel, the University of Pennsylvania, you encounter the sentence, he lowered the sopping girl over a basin where then stomach lubricant was applied and this doctor, unforgivably a man, would not even look at her, but watched a screen with the black-and-white abomination of her binarious uterus wincing and bouncing in reaction to being seen, the two of them at last. But if we flash forward to now, four books later, even more so on the first page of Revenge of the Scapegoat, we encounter a remarkable sentence. I had on very, very dark green shoes a black-green vegan leather, more like a liquid you would press from a hot tampon you are pulling now by the lamplight out of a toad's omnibus of Anais Nin. Which is just amazing. Uh, but I wanted you to talk about the poetics of the sentence for you, which feel like they have an impossible alchemy of almost like too much is happening in them and almost as if Provocatively something is even missing in them. Um tell us, tell us tell us about um your love of the sentence and syntax in this way.
1: Yeah. Well, that sentence from revenge was absolutely the sentence that I kept on. I was working on the short story, and that was the sentence that I was the sentence. Yeah. Okay. And so I just took me a while to understand. Oh, just leave the short story. Just that's the only sentence you like. And then make a book that's with sentences like that one um so i'm glad you like that one um oh i like a sentence for all the reasons all the great sentence lovers like a sentence um so much possibility um it's a closed form but you can make it however long you want and i like clauses because i love discordance discordance for me is the reason to write, um, it's actually a really, it's like a reason I fear um, writing in like a popular way or like for like a more general readership or something like that. Um, Because sometimes when uh, fiction in particular goes into like a kind of more popular space, um, this sort of smoothness or intelligibility starts to take over when for me discordance is yeah, that's everything to me. The idea that a sentence can possess um, its opposites inside of it, um, all kinds of like like things that are askew or wrong with it or just that make it completely different or that start to duplicate itself inside of itself in a way that's really dumb and great. <laughs> um, uh, there's so many. I really like to like and like I think the clause is like a perfect um like tool for discordance and that's like such an important experience of being alive that there are things that are just like paradoxical and discordant and don't make sense and aren't part of something and you're like why is that there too um I think oh my goodness I mean Flaubert is like really great at this um the discordant clause uh so, you know, whatever, like repetition and difference, all this stuff, um, but I, I love that. Um, and there's always room in a sentence for another surprise um, for something just like even more weird. Um, a lot of my writing comes from boredom, like a feeling of like, I'm gonna, I mean, I don't say this lightly, um, but like a feeling of like, I really do actually think of writing as like an anti-suicide act. Mm. and yeah, it's like, I'm going to kill myself. I'm so bored unless something really happens in this sentence. And it really comes from like that really deep sense of like something better. And I don't mean a plot thing. Um, and I also think I like compression. So the sentence from revenge is really compressed. There's just like a lot going on. Um, and yeah, I think that that is something that is, uh, comes from my experience of being, um, you know, uh, female um there are just so many instances instances in my life that where i'm interrupted or disbelieved or you know all the things and um whenever you are interrupting somebody (laughs) or disbelieving them you're just creating another clause for the sentence that they're writing Mm -hmm. you are just compressing them and they're becoming like so good at it Wow. Um, so then writing can like if you decide to write then or whatever your art is That is an expression of that compression from when you've been disbelieved or interrupted or oppressed or whatever it is. It's like important that it all happens in one sentence because that's you saying this is one sentence, motherfucker.
0: Wow, I love that. Um, The thing that came to mind for me around having a sentence like this on the opening page in both of those books, even when you might not encounter another one for a while in the same books, it made me think of when Sheila says that This is one of the strangest but also most certain books she's read recently. Or when she says, your books have a natural authority, the authority of those artworks which are strictly themselves. Because to me, I think, whether by design or not, that by doing this so early in the book, that you sort of set the scope of what the book might do at any point in the following pages, even if it doesn't happen frequently Um, but the reason I had you talk about Iris's box and then about sentences is because I uh, forgot about the box. (laughs) Well, good. (laughs) Because you said something else to Sheila that I really was intrigued by. You said writing for me, at least in the beginning was born out of making a language that was like a cryptology unreadable to my family of origin, unreadable because it was so beautiful. It is difficult for me to write plainly even when I absolutely want to and see that that would be best because my original impulse has to do with writing code for a wormhole outside of sadness and abuse. And and when, when I think of your family and Iris's family, where you and Iris are the cathected figure, the scapegoat that holds all of the blame for the family, and that your sibling or Iris's sibling, my apologies, and that Iris's sibling is complicit in this. And as a way of survival, Iris has this box, a box only for her, a box where Iris collects ephemera and reflects, ephemera that reflects her own subjective life experience over and against a weaponized narrative against her. That that box gets emptied and used by her brother who really is in the end an agent of the state as he doesn't simply take Iris's no, he, he, Iris says, no, you can't use my box. He then goes to the parents essentially employing their narrative against her returns the box after his project with his name etched into the wood that even here is not safe. There's no safe box. But the way you describe language in this conversation with Sheila, it, it feels like this is a sort of box. And I, you mentioned the sentence is a closed system, that writing this way, this cryptology, feels like this box impulse to me, a box stuffed with the things you love and assembled in a way that seems beautiful to you on your own terms. I, I don't know if this is resonating with you in any way, but... I, it really struck me, this idea of the box in that story and then the box regarding sentences.
1: I love it. I love it. Um, yeah, I just wonder about how many people would be listening to this, other writers who just, how many writers had boxes when they were little? I just bet 98%. <laughs> like,
0: but how many yeah. writers write sentences to try to to protect something? I think that's so interesting that you're aware of that, this idea that you're collecting things that aren't supposed to be readable by your family of origin um, or parts of your family of origin. Um, you're you're arranging them in a certain way in this closed space.
1: Yeah, I don't think I can say it better. I, I think that just really resonates with me and feels feels lovely to think about all of these boxes. The one thing I would say from all of this, which I hope is like part of this narrative or like comes through in the book, um, I don't know, when parents scapegoat one of the children, they really abuse the other child to like, they conscript that child to be an agent of the state and they tear those siblings apart. And um, I, I don't know, just in my own life, I really hold that. Um, that that sibling was a child too. And and I think that's what's so painful.
0: And if they're witnessing their sibling having hellfire rain down upon them, I'm sure their behavior in contrast to that is also partially to avoid that happening to them too, I would yeah. imagine.
1: Yeah, it's a really scary family system. Um, yeah, but <laughs> the boxes.
0: Well, okay, so I want to take this this question of syntax and sort of telescope back out into story. Um, One of the ways you yourself do this is with the notion of the scapegoat, a phenomenon that is very much on Iris's mind. Um, The book has lines like, there was hatred I was meant to hold in the place of a loved self. And the village lives because the scapegoat is outside its walls. And when you are the scapegoat in your family, your body becomes your family. When you get sick, your body begins talking to you too. But there's an interesting part early in the book, engaging with the writing of Maurice Blanchot from his book, The Writing of the Disaster. I'm going to read a very heady paragraph um, from that's partly Iris and partly Blanchot quoted in the middle of Iris. Um, a scapegoat escapes. You can learn a lot by looking at words, not using etymology, something the theorist Maurice Blanchot warns us about in grave and clear terms, thank God. Quote, this following part's Blanchot. Likewise, the radicalization whereby etymologies linkages appear to promise us the security of a native habitat is the hiding place of the homelessness which the ultimates demand, the eschatological imperative, without finality and without logos, incites in us as uprooted creatures, deprived by language itself of language, of language understood as ground where the germinal root would plunge and as the promise of a developing life, unquote. Back to Iris. Uprooted creatures, we cannot all be traced back to a source or be understood from the viewpoint of our origin. But there's an irony here, I think, about this warning against the seduction of etymology, that we cannot all be traced back to a source or understood from the viewpoint of origin because I think of the etymology of the word scapegoat itself. I'm thinking of how the word scapegoat comes from the escape goat of the Yom Kippur ritual in ancient Israel, when the high priest would sacrifice one goat to God and the other, the escape goat, would have the sins of the community placed upon its head and then be driven out into the desert to its ultimate demise. And the etymology of this word the origin of it seems particularly relevant to me, that even though scapegoating as a phenomenon predates this ritual, the name comes from a Jewish ritual, and it was the scapegoating of Jews throughout time, culminating in the ways the Holocaust rips through your family and Iris's. That's the atmosphere in which she is scapegoated by her family. A family that's living in the trauma of itself having been scapegoated. So I guess I'm curious if this seems right to you, but I'm also curious to have you talk about etymology and blanchot. If any if any of this comes to if any of this question, his warning against seeking out like original meaning by looking at the meaning behind the casual meaning of a word looking behind the casual meaning of this word seems to me to be revelatory around this family.
1: Yeah. I mean, Iris makes all kinds of statements that she has no actual, like she just demonstrates the opposite constantly in this book. Um, That's like always happening with Iris. Um, Yeah. She's kind of a a fool um, (laughs) in that way. Um, A confident fool. I don't have any particular, yeah. I mean, this is why this is not nonfiction in a way. Like I have no um allegiance to the thoughts of Blanchot in this moment or not. Um, I read theory, you know, I, I did like a PhD. I, I like I read and I sometimes I teach theory, but I'm such a creative with it. Like I really read that kind of thing as a way to just inseam, I just inseam it into my own like kind of. Personal world of imagination. Like I'm, I'm not a theorist. I don't, I don't have, um, I don't have any like faith in, and I mean, maybe this is actually a little bit of a, this starts to become very tautological. But I don't have any faith in the truth or like pinning down a meaning. Which of course, theory has helped me um, secure that 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 meaning, of non-meaning. But yeah, I don't have any allegiance to Blanchot's thought. Um, I really played it for the joke of that. It's just funny that she calls it clear. (laughs) Like it's not clear. She's just like torturing herself, (laughs) sitting in good karma reading this stuff.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I read it so many times that I don't know that I can really place. I mean, talk about strange sentences too. That's a very, this, how to place yourself in that sentence is, is difficult.
1: I mean, I would just speak to the, like, what to me kind of feels like the bigger kind of question about um, scapegoating and, Iris's position as a third generation survivor of the Holocaust, um, as coming from this lineage of Holocaust survivor, survivors, which is my own. And I, I don't not make that connection in the book. There's a lot about the Holocaust in this book. Um, and I think for me, that's like an ultimate irony that scapegoated, um, people have been deeply wounded by scapegoating, um, something about that mechanism repeats itself and finds its way into different situations, uh, which isn't to say that those are all equal situations or something like that. But the mechanism is just a really strong mechanism. It's like a really um, resilient mechanism in humanity. Um, And that is sort of like overwhelming to me. Um, So that was a really important aspect of the book. And I think one of the more healing aspects of the book for me personally, um, as far as like the whole like the idea of like this as like exposure therapy, for me um, being able to explore uh, like whatever these letters and my my history with my people, um, and by that I mean my family um, through the lens of the Holocaust was a way for me to deeply um, think about and and mourn and repeat to myself that. Um, that my family is like very affected by the Holocaust. And, um, and that's on my dad's side, you know, my dad, uh, grew up, uh, the child of, um, two survivors and, um, and they, you know, um, there was a lot of, uh, you know, trauma in that situation. And I don't know if it's like a straight line of like, Oh, well then everything's fine with how things panned out between us. But, um, oh my God, just like the feeling of kind of just compassion and sadness. I feel around what that continues to do just in my one little family is like amazing and is part of what the book's about. Yeah.
0: Well, you mentioned the scapegoat mechanism, which is, I mean, I'm sure it's not only Renee Girard's phrase, but um, Iris's feet both are named characters from a Flaubert novel, and they have these conversations. Her painful rheumatoid arthritic feet have these conversations about things like the Jews being accused of of causing the Black Plague, for instance. But in the end notes, we learn that some of their dialogue is lifted from Gerard's book, The Scapegoat, which I didn't know. But I, I looked into... Um, I looked into that theory a little bit. I just wanted to read, this isn't him speaking, but I just wanted to read this because it, it does also come back in a, this little description comes back to this question of the father in an interesting way to me. So this is a description of Gerard's theory of the scapegoat mechanism. Whereas the philosophers of the 18th century would have agreed that communal violence comes to an end due to a social contract, Girard believes that, paradoxically, the problem of violence is frequently solved with a lesser dose of violence. When mimetic rivalries accumulate, tensions grow even greater, but that tension eventually reaches a paroxysm. When violence is at the point of threatening the existence of the community, very frequently a bizarre psychosocial mechanism arrives. Communal violence is all of a sudden projected upon a single individual. Thus, people that were formerly struggling now unite efforts against someone chosen as a scapegoat. Former enemies now become friends as they communally participate in the execution of violence against a specified enemy. Girard believes that the scapegoat mechanism is the very foundation of cultural life. Natural man became civilized not through some sort of rational deliberation embodied in a social contract, but rather through the repetition of the scapegoat mechanism. And very much as the philosophers of the 18th century believed that their descriptions of the natural state were in fact historical, Girard believes that Paleolithic men continually used the scapegoat mechanism And it was precisely this feature that allowed them to lay the foundations of culture and civilization. What's interesting is it goes on to contrast him to Freud, the former whose founding murder is due to the scapegoat mechanism, and the latter, Freud, that the origins of culture are founded upon the original murder of a father figure by his sons. But they're both agreeing that civilization is founded on a murder which I thought was really interesting. But um, maybe you could speak a little to, I, I don't want you to put you in the same place I do with Blanchot, but maybe you could speak a little bit to um, your interest in Girard in importing him into the mouths of your feet. <laughs> <laughs> and then also maybe you could talk a little bit about Flaubert, who appears in multiple books of yours. And you must have enough of an engagement with him or interest in him that these feet characters become um, Flaubert named characters.
1: Yeah, that was really illuminating. That what you read about Gerard and um, I'm by no means like a scholar in in this or or with Gerard, um, but I take from yeah. I mean, I'm interested in his thinking about it on this sort of like massive scale. Right. Um, And I think about like, how do we, I don't know, I don't know how we're going to get out of any of this, but how do we evolve the human? Like, do we have anything at our disposal to evolve the human? Like, can we evolve ourselves in any way or not? Because look at all this repetition. I mean, I, I don't know, but, I think that would be a, um, like if I were to do, if I were to (laughs) do like an Elizabeth Holmes style startup, maybe my startup idea in Silicon Valley would be like a way to reach the scapegoat mechanism. Mm -hmm. Like if you just like wanted to think about ways to like retool humanity to like potentially survive for at least another 50 years or whatever we have, like that would be like a a worthwhile thing to try to retool. Um, I think in my book, I'm interested in retooling it by, um, by like shattering traditional family structures, which is not, you know, which I think a lot of people are. And um, that's one of my proposals about how to try to like reach the mechanism. But um, I mean, I am attracted to his sort of like universal kind of big view of it, um, but I'm not, yeah, I don't know. I've just talked about a reference or like, I've just been wandering in the desert thinking about um, scapegoats for a while. And way before I received these letters or started like kind of in earnest, like putting down the prose of this book, I always had this title revenge of the scapegoat in my head for like the past, maybe five years, just like, I'm going to write my revenge. Like that actually was like in my head. And I was thinking about this goat and um yeah, I don't know. I'm like a pretty bored person. Like I went to the library and took out this book because it's called the scapegoat. <laughs> and um yeah, and I would just sit at the library and copy it out by hand in my journal. Um I don't know why. I mean I, I don't know. I, I like to do things like that. I like the kind of like ritualistic kind of things like that. Um it wasn't like a book that it's not like a I'm not like super committed to Gerard's version of everything. Um, In fact, I don't know. I mean, I read things in that book or wrote them, transcribed some things in that book where I was like, are you, I don't know. There were some interesting parts, (laughs) but um, yeah, I mean I liked to write it down in my journal. I love to do stuff like that. I love to make things mine to, um, to somehow, I love to take other people's sentences and then start using them and start making my own or, or things like that. I love to write with other books in that way. And and sometimes it's like with like a book that I admire, or a writer I admire, and sometimes it doesn't even matter. It's yeah. just like, I just want to use text in some way.
0: I do like the, um, I don't know if it's, a, I, I don't think it's entirely a similar um, impulse probably from your end, but uh, from a reading perspective, like in blackfishing the IUD, we get the testimonies of other women, so we're getting the syntax and uh, and the way they, the way they speak, and that sort of difference of, of tone and texture. And it's similar here when we encounter Blanchot all of a sudden, or encounter uh, unattributed Gerard coming from Iris' feet conversation too.
1: Yeah, I mean, the feet are already plagiarized. They're already Bouvard and Pécouché. Bouvard and Pécouché might as well um, somehow plagiarize Gerard, I don't know. Um, Yeah, but I guess I love Flaubert so much. And um, he's like a total hero of mine. And he's such a grump and um, just detested kind of normal society. And and was like really um, uh, completely leery of expertise and, um, and knowledge, you know, he was like, really, Mm -hmm. uh, so I love Bouvard and Pécouche. They're like, um, the dearest, most wonderful idiots in the whole world. And, um, that book is just pure delight. And, um, I don't know. I mean, one of the origin stories of this book is that I was just like dealing with some of the lower moments of how, when I was in a lot of pain from the rheumatoid arthritis and, um, doing all kinds of things. But then um, I had just taken this like, pot chocolate, and I ate too much, (laughs) which everybody knows what that's like. And, um, or some people do and, um, and I was like, so too stoned and it was like lasting forever. And I was like, you know, in that typical, was, this is a stoner novel is what I'm trying to say. Like, this is a total stoner novel. I was like, take me to the hospital. My heart's going to explode. And then as I was coming kind of down from that um, and, you know, I had gotten this, um, you know, not like, I think this is the only reason for it to smoke, but um, I had gotten this or to, to take marijuana or whatever, but I had gotten this really specifically because I was like, in a ton of pain. Like I was like, you know, I was wrecked. I was like, my feet were like, I mean, it was very scary. It's very scary. Um, and um, unfortunately I'm not in that space anymore or I shouldn't say anymore, but right now, but at the time it was like horrifying. And I was like chugging this pot of chocolate being like, come on, anything, my feet. And I was coming down from this moment and um, just felt so silly just felt so silly, so stoned. And um, my my partner was there, of course, he was like, babysitting me at this point for like five hours running. And I just started putting on a puppet show where my feet were bouvard and picochet. And I was just (laughs) cracking us up. And they were just talking to each other about all their little ideas and schemes and plans. you know, they were in pain. And this was a wonderfully funny thing to do with feet that had been um, terrifying me for, you know, the past couple, like two years or whatever it was at that time. And that just became a trope in my house that they were bouvard and pécouche. And um, I just put that dearness, that dearness that happened, that sweet silliness, um, just into the book. Um, Yeah,
0: Do you have Spain, the book Spain nearby?
1: Yeah, I put a big stack of my stuff here so that I would be
0: prepared. I was hoping maybe you would read just as a, maybe an early example of your interest in scapegoating page
1: 127. Um, Oh, sure. Okay. Uh, Well, this chapter is called Nipple. (laughs) At the retirement party, people made speeches until my mom hollered from her wheelchair. <laughs> and I'm going to do this in my mom's voice, which I love. I feel like I get to hear my own funeral. Her friend, her best friend for a long time, addressed me after the speeches in front of people at the table, lunch at the at an inn, uh, in quotations. You always knew what was going on. You knew what he was. And we kept trying but you saw what was going on from a very young age. You knew it before us, and you took it. Beatings for your knowledge, end quote. My sister heard it. She got up. She couldn't hear it. And here I was, imagining this woman, my mother's best friend, had thought the worst of me, the way I had acted out. I raged and slumped and scowled as a child. I bartle and Cassandred and wailed this horrible king, monster father. Are you reading this? You threw that chair. You touched my nipple. You didn't love. You didn't give love to my sick mother.
0: We, we've been listening to Karen Balin read from an earlier book, Spain. Um, so I, I felt like I was reading a Jewish writer even before the explicit ways you engaged with the Holocaust, which you do engage with across your books. Um, Just the familiar ways you consulate certain figures um, that I recognize, like Felix Mendelssohn and Paul Celan, um, the mikveh in your first novel, Baraka's anti-Semitic 9-11 poem in Spain, Visiting, Dachau. Um, But even a book you might least expect to be Jewish, Blackfishing the IUD, Uh, which was the first book of yours I read, and which opens with a medical testimony of another woman. But then as soon as it's in your own voice, with you rearranging your library by gender, we immediately get Walter Benjamin unpacking his library as the Nazis are taking over. And later we get the painter Anita Ray, while Jewish by ancestry, was baptized, lived as an assimilated Christian, held anti-Semitic beliefs, and yet was hunted By the Nazis as a Jew. And your latest book has an amazing painting on the cover that isn't by a Jewish painter, but it's by a degenerate, uh, an artist labeled degenerate by the Nazis who had hundreds of works destroyed and who, like Anita Ray and Walter Benjamin, killed um, himself. And you write not only about the way autoimmunity is passed down through families but also the legacy of paranoia and traumatized inheritance from the Holocaust and blackfishing. Um, you, as you've already mentioned, your father's parents each had no family left when they met and your father was fearful enough that he wouldn't allow you to have your names on the answering machine. And to top it off, you also mentioned to Sheila, how as a kid growing up, everyone thought you looked like Anne Frank, uh, one thing I really like about how you handle the family legacy of trauma in your four books is that what gets centered, emotionally speaking, is your rage and your outrage at how you're being treated, um, how your father treats you, the way your family system is constructed. You always provide us, but without focusing on it, I think, some of the basic facts of your father's history. Um, but you don't try to connect the dots you don't excuse him or narrativize the why. I, I At least that's not how it feels to me. It feels like you just maybe juxtapose with this is also true. Is this related? Uh, and you don't try to tell us how. But I guess I would love to hear about what feels like a difficult balancing act, or maybe not, but um, but I appreciated you staying it w- within the ways you were wronged. And yet, I mean, obviously, providing this other material as as almost I would argue as almost atmosphere, we can't. You said it earlier you can't maybe draw a straight line, and I think that feels right to me. Like, um, not everybody who's survived the Holocaust or was raised by Holocaust survivors uh, constructs families the same way, and not everyone experiences trauma one to the next the same. Some become the opposite of each other, with the same circumstance. But um, do you see these as Jewish books, and and do you have any thoughts as a writer about um, writing your own narrative while also looking at um, at least somewhat at this at the pain of those who are causing pain?
1: It's a really natural stance for a scapegoat to be interested in voicing how they were wronged. (laughs) It's almost like that's just my nature. That's the nature, I'm I'm perfectly built to do that. Um, When nobody in your family system is saying that anything is happening to you, you will just be built to say that something happened to you. I I, I mean, or at least that's what happened to me. I think that's like a common scapegoat, family scapegoat thing. I mean, go to the Reddit boards, (laughs) you know, that's like a thing. So it makes so much sense to me to do that because that's what I. It's like that's, that's what I got spit out of, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the second part, the atmosphere part, that comes with um, time and age and all the time it takes to. To process, to process uh, the Holocaust and your place in it. Um, I feel like. I was so impacted by learning about the Holocaust when I was young, not only because it's an amazing thing to have to tell children about what happened and and even what happened in your family, Um, but it was a thing that, um, based on just being like a, I guess, raised as like a middle-class Jewish person um, in like the 80s and 90s, like, I don't know. I was probably like assigned the Diary of Anne Frank like over 10 times. I read all of, you know, like it was like Holocaust stories were everywhere. Like that was like all of my, all of my schooling, you know, my time at synagogue. Like it just was like there was so much education about it, which was all bound up in, you know, never forget. Um, there was like a disconnect as an adult. I feel with the idea of of never forgetting Um, like where is like, where's the sober maturity and the acknowledgement of what humans do and keep doing and how we repeat and how, you know, I, I mean, I can't, I'd be remiss not, not to bring up the Palestinian cause and the betrayal I felt learning about the Holocaust through this lens of never forget and we if we don't forget then we won't repeat. Like while I was like simultaneously being um, you know, told that there was an evil group of people called the Palestinians who were harming and threatening all of Israel and they needed to be quashed. I mean, that was the lesson I learned as a child. And I would, I would make that clear that that was not my family's lesson. That was my community's or larger, you know, that was a larger lesson than my family. My family was didn't really have that stance, but
0: but even saying the six million as the not forgetting when there were eleven or twelve million, like what solidarity could be had collectively if if we're trying not to have it if it's not about never again for us but just never again, um, you would think maybe a place to start could be to talk about the eleven million. Not to diminish the six million Jews and the integral part anti Semitism played in the eradication of Jews from, or the desired eradication of Jews from Europe, but the Roma people, queer people, um, disabled people who were all being eradicated alongside.
1: Yeah, I didn't, I certainly, that was not part of the, the Holocaust education that I was given me neither Um, yeah yeah it was a strange you know there was a lot of pressure as a child to like feel the holocaust you know like even just in school assignments like we're always like asked to feel it and then it was like I was asked to feel it at home in a way but also like my dad never spoke about his family which was like a real lineage like probably his family his parents never spoke about it he had a lack of access to that information based on his own parents like completely like a very extreme aporia like so there was just a lack of like actual passing down of like a family story but mixed with like please feel this like now that we've told you child about this your job is to feel this um and then without yeah and then the disillusionment and getting older and being like whoa whoa wait like how does this all work i don't know and like thinking about things like I don't know, I like started reading like Norman Finkelstein, like on like Holocaust kitsch. And like, when did Holocaust education even begin? Like, I don't know, like, there's just a lot to think about, about like, why we remember things and what we do with those things. But yeah, I mean, I find it to be a very important part about my family story. But it's not really, I don't know, it's like, in a way, it's like, not an excuse or something. Like, I needed care from my parents and um yeah I don't know I I don't really and also I just don't like like I don't believe in narrative like that like I don't (laughs) I don't think there are lines like that so I would never do that but I do want to acknowledge it I mean one of the um like it's really you know I hardly have a relationship with my my dad but one of the times that I've really connected with him in recent you know recent times was after the January 6th riots and I felt such pain um about that t-shirt that Camp Auschwitz t-shirt and I just thought this this thing has ruined my whole family like it like I shouldn't say that my family isn't ruined people are you know it's not this is not an absolute thing but it has ruined our relations in many ways there has been so much just aporia and rage and grief and like inability to express love that comes from this trauma that's part of it that's intertwined with it and I just I don't know I wrote to my dad and said I'm so sorry you had to see that shirt
0: yeah did he write back
1: yeah yeah I have like a kind of gentle slow email relationship with him I guess yeah
0: well this might be a a little bit of an awkward pivot from here but one of the things that was most recognizably Jewish for me was less the references and cultural markers than the body humor and the focus on scatological humor or orifice humor. Um, The father touched nipple that turns red and stays that way as a sign of love to, to you, urination scene the debacle of continuous menstruation for the character in in the University of Pennsylvania who has not one uterus but two. Um, Iris teaching a class on menstruation in literature in the latest book. But it isn't just that you write about these things, but that these ways the body is unruly or normally hidden in a cloak of shame or decorum. Um the violating of that decorum and sort of the bring bringing the shameful to the surface um, there's some of the funniest parts of your writing they feel to me i associate that with jewish humor and especially so when it's also juxtaposed with like these passages by Blanchot or like walter benjamin uh, meditations the extended enema scene for instance in the black in blackfishing the iud is just so disastrously amazing. It's maybe my favorite scene of yours in any of your books. But I wanted to take this into a discussion of disability poetics. Um, I don't know what the timeline of your diagnosis with RA is with regards to the writing of Spain or University of Pennsylvania, which are the two books before Blackfishing the IUD, but the continual bleeding in Pennsylvania and even more the way you're you're passing out with frequency in Spain and then sort of self-justifying it as everybody else is concerned about the, the loss of consciousness, I couldn't help but connect a through line of the rebellion of the body through all of your work, culminating in the discourse between the two Bear character named Painful Feet in the latest book. And, and I imagine those two feet like the those two old men in the Muppet <laughs> Show on the balcony because <laughs> I, I haven't read the Flaubert book. So like in my mind, that's what I see is I see those two old old men critics. Um, <laughs> you, you've said things like, as I quoted earlier, when you are the scapegoat in your family, your body becomes your family. When you get sick, your body begins talking to you too. And you've also said reading sod gave me ideas about the limits of the sentence being inextricable from the limits of the body. And similarly, before I had RA, I never made a connection when I saw someone limping, dragging, or bent, that pain is attached to shape, to form. I did not know that form is pain. So when I think of form as pain, I also think of you looking at Renoir's late paintings what was called his late sensual style that is really the product of his nurse having to strap a brush to what you called his beak his beaked hand his hand that was deformed from rheumatoid arthritis into something other than what we normally would consider a hand um so I guess I was hoping you could just extend this uh question of form and pain into um some thoughts on a poetics of disability for you.
1: Yeah, oh, so many things to think about here, yeah. I mean, just going, starting with the University of Pennsylvania where um, the protagonist has a condition, She's she has something called womb duplicatum, which makes her bleed almost all month, you know, she's just like always menstruating to a great degree. Um, and, um, you know, she's too much, Um, She doesn't fit inside of her institution, the University of Pennsylvania. Um, She doesn't fit into all kinds of things because she's too much, she's spilling outside of herself. Um, And disability is like that. It's too much, Um, you know, it's unruly. Um, Before I, you know, I, before I experienced my own, you know, kind of reckoning with chronic illness and pain myself, which really began in 2015, you know, I was just a child of, of a sick parent, somebody who has MS and um, yeah, I don't know when, yeah, things like the bathroom and how to handle bodily functions and what's acceptable in public and how you can be in public or not, like that all becomes really different. Um, and Sometimes that's really uncomfortable and you want to be able to just hold yourself in and not display all of these things. But, you know, I guess the culture in my family has been one of things are going to happen, you know? Um, yeah, there's going to be too much and, and too much has to do with the public, right? Cause you can't be too much alone. Um, it has to do with like touching the public space. Um, so I guess I'm really personally feel like I'm too much all of the time. I have too, much, too many emotions. Sometimes I'm too much in pain. I'm too angry. Um, I'm too paranoid. Um, there's a lot of things. And, and that was an interesting thing about the Renoir exhibit um, that I think I mentioned in uh, Blackfishing the IUD uh, where I saw an exhibit on Renoir. Um, where he is being uh, sort of celebrated for his late sensuous style, which I I guess I won't say that's not true, that he had a late sensuous style, but there was something that was very in his way. I don't know, like a huge Renoir fan, but he, um, but, you know, it was really erased from the narrative, you know, of all the paratext around that show. There was no mention of him having rheumatoid arthritis, which really, is a really integral part of how he painted. Um, and so that's just interesting to me that, that like that would sort of somehow like mar the like importance of the way he made art. Like it has to be attributed to something else. Like it can't be because he was working with something that was like, he was too in pain and so had to do something else. Um, And yeah, I, I love, you know, I guess as in my own artistic life, I like to reject those sorts of things. Like somebody might say, um, I mean, I think one of the main things that I've been told is that I'm too angry, um, but anger is like one of the ways that I make art. So mm-hmm. I don't really want to not be angry. Um, I don't, I feel so happy when I'm angry. I, I don't know if that's like wrong, but it, but it, it feels like uh, what, what is happening, you know? It's what, it's the condition that I have. It comes from something. And I, yeah, I'm very interested in just being in that space. I mean, I I think that, you know, people who are interested in disability poetics or disability studies have all kinds of cool ways to theorize that. I love the the concept of crip time, um, the idea that um, when you are disabled, things will happen at a different pace. There will be a different kind of space time around those things that the body will start to dictate. I love the idea that the body, um, makes form. Um, oh, it's just so true. I mean, if you have to go to the bathroom, then you have to go to the bathroom. Like you can't continue your story. Like, I guess the story gets cut short, like of your body, like that's like how it all works. Um, and yeah, I know, I mean, I do feel like that is like very Jewishy of me. I did like when I was in high school, I read Portnoy's Complain. I loved it. Like I love the bathroom.
0: <laughs> uh, the bathroom in that book is very important. Yeah. And so absent. So this is where I want to take this a little bit further as, into you as a teacher, because there's really funny writing advice in this book. So for instance, quote, of course, your characters have gone to the bathroom at some point but your reader doesn't need to know everything that happens or in order. But whoever you're writing about, they probably excuse themselves at some point to collect themselves and to pee or empty their bowels and marvel at soaps. But in fiction, you don't say everything unless you're a man, which is ironic because we're in a bath. We're in bathroom moments quite a lot with you, I think, (laughs) Uh, or, or the assertion that you don't need to write characters because they change which makes me think of you in an interview saying, I think of characters more as functions, propulsions, concentrations, knots of language, which I think is so wonderful. But it definitely makes me intrigued about being a student of yours. I was a student forever at Portland State, uh, six years, part-time in their MFA program. Um, Not because, and I was there for so long, not because I was slow, as I wasn't really pursuing the degree because I had no plan on teaching, but they had these certain classes that are these generative, immersive seminars. Like, so you could take a class on uh, sentimentality or the apocalypse, and you would immerse yourself in reading and then be given uh, generative assignments so that you weren't being workshopped. But I also got, I also got to sit in on the observed workshops of the finalists for multiple faculty searches. So there would be two or 300 applicants. They'd be narrowed down to four and those four would be invited to campus and they would each conduct a workshop with volunteer students. And so I would often volunteer. You were one of those finalists at one point and you. were you there? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was so excited about your, your, your presentation. I just have to say. And you talked about something that really excited me, um, oh my God. which I I probably won't remember correctly, but I wanna bring it up. Um, so it was the idea of how, how to write. So you were talking about what sort of classes you might teach um, in the future. And one of them was on how to write when your life makes it impossible, especially because of illness. Like if you're always in the waiting room of the doctor's office, How can those times be transformed into art making or become the site of art? And I don't know if this rings a bell or if this is actually something that you've manifest uh, in Massachusetts, but I would love it if it does, if you could talk more about it, like um, the way you can turn a liability into a writing asset essentially.
1: Cool. Well, thank you for telling me that you were there. It's like finding out that there was this sweetness in the room that you just didn't even know was there. And that's so great. Um, During this, of course, stressful moment (laughs) where you're trying to do this thing. Um, But yeah, I've taught classes like that. I taught a class at my current institution, um, the Massachusetts College of Liberal Arts um, that I titled Crip Technique. Um, which is a real like a uh, callback to this uh, kind of disability studies word CRIP where they are re- reappropriating um, the word CRIP, um, which I kind of now I'm like, that's not good for a course title because people don't have the context yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I taught one semester of this CRIP technique course and then that's really evolved into that I teach narrative medicine courses now. Um, but this was not like, my early writing life was very, um, I don't know, like I went to art school as an undergrad. Um, I had a lot of, I don't know, I've, I've had a lot of time to write in my life. And actually the first time that I felt completely like I, everything was going to be taken away from me was when I was like in the diagnosis process of Getting RA, because first of all, I couldn't bend my fingers. So it was, I, I don't know. I felt very difficult to type or to write. And um the kind of administrative hell of being diagnosed with something is not to be trifled with. Um, the amount of time I spent on the phone or whatever trying to the administrative hell of the medical of, I don't know, of any system. I don't know. Um, but I just was like. And it was like constantly people being like don't worry this will take five minutes and then like five hours later i'm like no um so yeah it just sort of like swallowed me um plus you might be in so much pain and for me pain is really equivalent to like panic and like how do you write if you're panicking like i don't know um so i don't feel like i have an answer like don't worry Come on. If you just write in the waiting room, everything will be fine. (laughs) Journal there. You know, I don't have an answer. uh, Yeah. But I do I like it's so it's so part of like an artistic imperative to me to be out of step with the world. Like that's such an important part of being an artist. And I tend to practice that in my life by doing things in the wrong place. Um so um, I, one of my favorite pastimes as a student is to write, uh, write creatively during a lecture, you know? Um, or to, um, I don't know, to write in like the lobby of a business office <laughs> or whatever it is, like just, just to be in the wrong place doing something, um, redirecting the flow of energy inside of that space is like been like kind of an interesting practice for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know, I'm just sort of interested in ways that you could potentially experiment with leaning in to the strictures of your life. Um, I mean, I've had students just do all kinds of things that are as simple as like I had a student who had a night shift and then started writing during the night shift because he realized he has nothing else to do, which maybe. Would just be like well of course you have all this time actually but something about being told and telling yourself that you're at work perhaps prevents you from thinking that that's a space to do those things um so how do you do you do that um
0: it made me wonder i don't know if i'm if this is a false memory but I, i it's it's triggering this um memory when you were at psu of mentioning some project of somebody around Going to the doctor all the time and taking polaroids or taking photographs and then making some sort of art project that they were making as they were, so they were in a documentary mode through all the steps of their of these endless visits, which then become the the material ultimately of what they end up making.
1: Yeah, that's I was talking about Carolyn Lazard, who's super special, awesome artist who um, does a lot of art making and writing around disability. And they did, I forget what the series is called, but it's a series of photographs of the art. It's photographs of art in waiting rooms, um, which is really interesting. Like what kind of art do people put up in these spaces? So it's almost like you're, it's like a gallery (laughs) of like this art. Um, But yeah, it is a way to, that can be a way to feel like you're taking, um, you're holding something for yourself or like, I don't know something about being, like sick is like getting in line or being in step with things, like being in step with a medical system, or just like getting all of your papers in order, or just being like a good patient, especially if you're like gendered in that space or whatever, all these different things, or racialized in that space. And so you're like always thinking about like how can I prove that I'm like a good woman who knows who knows what she's talking about or can be believed, or you know, there's all that energy. So it's really a lot of like you just trying to do that. So it could be very interesting to become a documentarian of some kind in that space. Um, When I got my IUD out, um, which was six days after it was put in, after I had become severely ill. And I went and had a very traumatizing experience with them taking it out, um, which I talk about in the book. And... um, I guess I was in the waiting room waiting for the appointment. So it was still in me and I just knew it was killing me. I was like, you know, waiting for this thing to be removed that was harming me so greatly. And I felt pretty insane. And um, that's where I wrote the first draft of the essay that I published in full Stop that would become blackfishing the IUD that comes from my anger. Like, that's why I don't want anybody to take away my anger. Like, it's like, I'm angry. Like, like, you think I'm going to sit in this waiting room and not do something with this? Like, you're wrong. Like, I have a real anger.
0: Let's, let's spend a little more time with it. Um, <laughs> um, so at one point in Blackfishing, you say, I must make an effort to escape. My father, speaking on my mother's disease, quote, most fathers would leave. My dad, head-shaking and disgusted at the sight of how mom needed to eat, how she moved or couldn't, his neglect, affairs, extreme disappointment. I shall have to find my way out of this. But it is belief ingrained that disability is the end of romance and punishable by rage. So it's interesting to me to think about disability punishable by rage, how your body, as you say, has become family, punishing you like your family did, which makes you punishable. So it's sort of this never-ending feedback loop. Um, I don't mean a causative one. I'm not suggesting that these things are the cause. Um, but the other aspect of your writing beyond the way you alchemize your rebellious body through humor is, I think, as you've mentioned, rage, and sometimes both at the same time. You, you, you've talked about your attraction to certain male writers who are grumpy, like Thomas Bernard, um, a mode of being peeved at the world that women are generally not allowed to be. Um, but I also wonder about the way it affects your language. Um, for instance, what you call your syntax of refusal in Spain where you said you had a lot of feminist rage in your PhD program and you were tired of making good writing because good writing felt like it was related to the expectation to be a good woman, and you instead refused to do the labor of meaning-making, instead filling the book with lazy metaphors that were more like tautologies, which I, I they're so great, like the sentence... A fire is like a bunch of daffodils on fire. Um, You've also called anger your vitality and paranoia your happiness. Um, But you've definitely braided, I think, three rages, or at least three rages. The rage of your body, a feminist rage, and the rage of the scapegoat in really interesting ways. And in a way, it feels like it comes from the body rather than the mind. And by that, I mean you, you, your mind wants, which is interesting in, in some of your books, your mind wants a, a, a more linear gender solidarity for life to be simple, that if all of your doctors had been women, for instance, um, you would have been heard and affirmed and um, believed. And yet, of course, life doesn't map out that way, that this traumatizing experience you're mentioning when you get your IED out—that is a, a woman, uh, who's a doctor who's who says some terrible things and and you've had incredible male doctors, um, and you do this great thing which I love, where there's certain writers who are men that you love Rambeau, O'Hara, Keats, Flaubert, Adorno, Baldwin—that you'd give honorary vaginas to, but I but I guess I wanted you to to, um, you don't have to speak to the, I mean, you can, but more than about this question of, of, of gender specifically, but more rage more broadly, if you could just speak to, um, I mean, it doesn't even sound like it's turning, like we're talking about disability poetics. It doesn't sound like you're turning a liability into an asset, but maybe you are. But it makes me think of what you said really early in our conversation about lowering yourself to then find something to, to come back up. I don't know if that's the right way, but when you're talking about disability is the end, the fear that disability is the end of romance and punishable by rage, but rage is also this, it seems almost like magical material for you.
1: I mean, one thing that I feel is important to say here is that I don't experience my body as being rage or enraged mm. um and that's like a common narrative about autoimmunity right like the body attacks you um your immune system is attacking you and um i don't think about my immune system that way i think my immune system just like sees something wrong and it's just so it's too much. Like, it's just like, wants to help so badly. (laughs) Mm -hmm. and It's kind of like a bouvard and picochet situation. They're just, it's a little too eager. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's doing it wrong. That idiot. Um, But I don't, um, I never feel like against my body. I like love my body and um, I'm so impressed with it. Like it's doing great with this autoimmune disease and anything else. And I'm just like, I'm with it.
0: Um, Well, I'm glad I misspoke so that you could, say that too because i do think in medical circles especially in alternative medical circles i would even argue where they way more than they should talk about like the way you're you're at fault for your own or can where they can narrativize the ways you're at fault for your um for your symptoms that it'd be easy to look at inflammation and redness and swelling as as like a somaticization of anger
1: yeah yeah i mean i like yeah i love anger in all these different forms but i don't feel that way and i think it's also important not to feel like for me it's it's important not to feel that way about my body i'm just like oh it it saw something was wrong it tried really hard you know it got this copper in it it's just it freaked out like it wanted to help um but that's how i have to kind of narrativize that and and it's how i feel my body is like on my side which um yeah which I say you know when you're the scapegoat of your family your body becomes your family like this is like this is what I've got we've got to do a group hug here
0: oh that so I read that differently that's interesting your body becomes your family see I took it as and that's how I just read it I think just now is I took it as your body becomes your family your family punishes you and then when you're the scapegoat your body becomes your family that's, that's how amazing. I was, that's how I was reading it this whole time.
1: Well, that makes a lot of
0: sense. Right. Oh no. <laughs> yeah, no, and I'm not saying it's true. And I, and yeah, I wouldn't want to make a facile reductive it. connection, but it does. That's the way I was reading this like microcosm macrocosm.
1: Oh yeah. Oh God. That makes so much sense to read it that way. And I just so feel the opposite that I like, didn't even think about that. Mm-hmm. Um, which is the cool thing about reading, but, um, and writing but yeah I know for me that line is like yeah my body has become my my crew my my loves my you know my my family um and I've always felt that way um or yeah like I've I've really had that kind of ethos in me for a long time um yeah and I didn't even feel betrayed by it when I got sick I was just like, oh, oh shit, <laughs> that copper. But, um, but as far as the other other aspects of this rage, absolutely. Um, I'm trying to think about because you brought syntax into all of this, and I am trying to think about like how does anger work syntactically?
0: Well, for sure, you've connected it with Spain with yeah. this these weird tautologies has been your refusal, which seems connected to a rage. I don't know if that's true in your latest book.
1: Yeah, I'm trying to think about how it works in revenge, like on a like syntactical level. So the quote you read from Blackfishing about kind of putting it together, like this is a quote describing that in my house growing up, the sick woman, my mother was sort of for being sick and that that was a pretty bad model. Um, and so when I got sick, uh, I had to really break that model. That specific quote you brought up um, was so specifically changed in not just the editing process, but the blurb process for that book. Because I was requesting a blurb from Johanna Hedba, and they read the manuscript and they said, and this part was different then. And they said, I don't like this. And I want, and they gave me a lot of reasons and they were very cool. And what that part originally did was simply say something to the extent of like, um, like my mom was sick and it was her fault or something like that. Um, but what I was doing in that moment was performing my sickness around that concept. And Johanna was like, um, that's a shame. Like, I don't know. I mean, their point was your reader doesn't understand that you're saying that you've been deranged. <laughs> like your reader isn't like getting that, that's your derangement. Your reader is just hearing that as that's how you feel about sick people or something. And that was an interesting feedback because I didn't feel that way. I felt like, can't everybody tell that I'm deranged? Doesn't everybody know that I've just been so kind of fucked up by stuff and I have like a deranged point of view and isn't that obvious? <laughs> and um, and Johanna was like, no. And that was a really interesting moment because it kind of afforded me a moment to think about myself as somebody who could actually change in some way, um, move through this, say that something is past. I mean, things that really wouldn't have occurred to me to write it that way. But, um, that was why I rewrote that passage that you just read to really explicate. This is how it was presented to me in my family of origin. That's why I'm now struggling. And my initial impulse was to just be a deranged person. And that that is you know, I think about my writing as like, I'm like a documentary photographer, like photographing my, photographing my anger, photographing my deranged soul, you know, and that the audience can, the reader can just take it. Um, and Johanna was like, there are sick people who might not want to hear that without understanding the context that that's how you've been made to feel, you know, like, I don't know. There was like, Johanna had like this caring ethic around the reader that I actually didn't, I had not cultivated that. So I rewrote it for Johanna. That's like, that's my rewrite for Johanna. Um, And I'm happy I did. And um, I think that in Revenge though, Revenge of the Scapegoat, part of how my anger manifests is that insane things happen in this book. Totally insane, unexcusable things happen in this book. And I don't think the narration is like really flinching around it. Um, It's just like normal that like somebody would be saying this stuff. And that's kind of like how I feel in life. I, and it comes from like being a child, learning about the Holocaust and learning about these horrible things and knowing what you're part of and um, being disappointed by like an abusive,
0: you know, toxic
1: situation in your family, you know, whatever, all the stuff, like you just become like, I'm a pretty hard cookie is I guess what I'm saying. And I think that part of, if I'm doing a refusal in revenge of the scapegoat, it's a refusal to like, yeah, just like a lot of like batshit psycho stuff happens and people act really poorly. And um, it's not really about like remediating that or like making it better or saying that people can be better—I don't know. I mean, I could think of a million examples. Obviously, like the behavior of Caroline at the art museum is a good place to start, and like what they do. But like, um, even just the way that Iris, even though her dear friend Ray is about to undergo like a major surgery, that means has quite a, carries quite a lot of meaning for Ray, and Ray probably needs Iris's support. And Iris just leaves. Right. Um, And I don't really explain that much. I'm like, yeah, that's, 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 these are the kinds of scapegoaty scoundrels you're dealing with here.
0: Like, Yeah. yeah. So thinking of a line from the university of Pennsylvania, a good book is a pamphlet on how to leave your parents. A great book is longer and tells you how to leave your town very long book helps you with the waiting you are enduring. You're waiting for your father to die. I want does to use that as a let's use that as a, a lead in to more questions about form and genre, but but more specifically around Revenge of the Scapegoat, um, because in part two we get new characters, um, Viva Tricks, if I'm pronouncing it right, um, and yet the new characters seem to be new in an uneasy way as you alluded to in the beginning that the differences between you and iris sort of crack we can peer through your characters or you you blur uh, you blur vivatrix and iris and yourself i think but i guess i guess wanted you to talk about the change in cast and setting in part 2 and how you see it in relationship to the world of part one like why do we why do we put on new costumes in a way in part two um, if that makes sense if that's even how you view it well
1: I think a lot of that is about the messiness of what it's like to write a novel and that by the time you're working out the prose of your novel and actually writing it you um, You have all these built-up figures and modes and moments that might become part of it. And so part of it is, I don't want to call it practical because it's so whimsical and, and weird, actually, and mercurial what happens. But part of it just has to do with the odd difference of all the things you've been conjuring And then you get a little bit like you don't know where else to go. And then you're like, well, I've been doing that conjuring work in that other journal. So that's where I'm going to go. Like you kind of set out, you make for yourself these little stones that you could use if you wanted to, because they are rich because they are born out of taking a lot of walks and doing a lot of journaling in the sun. If you're a lizard, like me, you need to write in the sun. And then you could just use them and they could come in and help you and, and you bend them into the book. So I think I don't, I don't start a book with a design or plan. Like I'm, I don't outline at all or anything like that. So it's more like what were some of the like richer wells of journaling that I had at my disposal and these figures or like, spaces that kept coming back to me or something that I was ready to finally use. And again, the letters became the thing that struck purpose through all of those things. So I have all this aimless writings in the desert, my René Gerard transcription <laughs> is sitting somewhere, you know, not like it's all like everything and nothing. And then the letters and, you know, like a genuine thank you to my dad for sending them. Like they just struck a reason through everything. And so all of a sudden, oh, that museum that I've been dreaming about and journaling about, and I don't know why, that gets to live here because anything can live here now that I know this, you know. So, I don't think I had like this design or plan around like the, like a real feeling about this this novel. It's more like that's just what novel writing can feel like to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, and also novel writing is bored. Like you're so bored when you're writing a novel. Oh my God. It's so boring. You get so bored. And then you just have (laughs) to like do something else. You have to be like, move them somewhere else. Your books are so
0: not boring. That's what's so great about them. They're so surprising all the time.
1: I'm. It's because I'm bored. Like I want to like, just go bonkers, you know, like something totally. And I mean, the book really mirrors. And another way to put it, okay. There's like four ways to put it, but like, I start the book in Philadelphia, which I love. I just, I love repping Philadelphia in any way. And, um, you know, that's where I'm from. And that's where I was living before I moved up to Massachusetts. And now I'm living in Vermont, but to work at the Massachusetts College of Liberal Arts. Um, So my own trajectory has been from Philly up into this like New England countryside. So it was just like a, you know, that's like a movement that was in my mind. And then on top of that, compounded with that was that, I was, I hate plot. Like, I don't, I have no like thoughts about plot. I don't have like, I don't have any ideas. Like I just, I could, if I were just making up the same plot, like I would just write, and I have, this is the quartet. Like I've read the same thing over and over again. Um, And I really love to work with other texts because I want them to determine things for me, which actually kind of reminds me a little bit of Sheila in a different way, but she loves like outside determinants, you know? Mm And Bouvard and Pécouche were all I needed. And Flaubert is all I need in this life. If I just rewrite every Flaubert novel, (laughs) I'll be fine. Um, And he gave me everything I needed. He didn't even need to finish it. He died before he finished that book. He gave us all, everything we need. Bouvard and Pécouche retire in Paris, and then they go to the country, and then they come back. So Iris... Is in Philadelphia. She goes to the country, and as dictated by by Flaubert, they, her feet must return, and so she she had better follow them there.
0: I love that, and I love I, I guess when going back to the beginning of how like your four books feel like porous to each other. I love the slippages that happen between these characters who may or may not be themselves. I mean, may or may not be the same character. So like, is Vivatrix Iris and is Iris you? Um, but there's also this other slippage. I don't know if it's a slippage, but maybe this is also a connection to Sheila Hetty too. And we only discover this in the end notes, is that you you transcribe real conversations you had in the world, but insert them in these in these in this fictional world. So for instance, Ray who is a real person and Ray, the character in the process of getting top surgery in the book. Ray's dialogue is often copied from something you recorded with them in real life. And Caroline occasionally is speaking the transcribed words of your real life partner. Um, I just wanted to, you to talk about that. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> about that aspect of the book. It's very different. I mean, maybe it's a similar impulse. It's very different than importing Blanchot's words, but you are taking something somewhat verbatim and plopping it into the book. We don't have any idea that you've done it in this case, that you're not completely inventing these these words.
1: Yeah. And there were a lot of debates. I mean, Dorothy you know, and Ray was very involved in the editing process. We had lots of conversations about how to do this and would it be more kind of right or helpful in some way for the reader to know that upfront. And there is a part in the narrative that we kind of decided to add where Iris is saying, I was recording the conversations I was having with Ray. So you kind of see it, there's like a little bit of a meta moment, but then in the back of the book is where it's like fully explicated. Um but with Ray, I mean, there were different, yeah, I mean, I think the overarching thing is that, which I think is a theme for me is that I don't like to write alone. And um, I love kind of giving it up. I, I I totally wish I were a different kind of artist sometimes. I would love to be like a filmmaker, um, like a documentary filmmaker or something like but I, I'm never gonna do it. I'll just write. but um, this is like a way to pretend to be like something like that. And, with Ray, um, Ray is just my dear friend, the writer Ray Levy, um, who's great. And, um, we've been friends for a while and we just have like really similar stories of being the family scapegoat and we've been talking about it with each other forever. We always like, kind of like get, go back and forth about this and confer with each other that it's something kind of like, that's hard to come out of. This was during the pandemic. It was like the first summer of the pandemic. And, um, So in the book, Ray and Iris live in the same city. They live in Philadelphia and, um, and Ray is preparing to get a surgery that's related to their transition. Um, in reality, like Ray lives in Virginia. I was living up in Massachusetts and I felt very unequipped to go help them with the surgery. Although a friend of ours, um, kind of heroically drove like through five states, like in the first summer of the pandemic um, to be with Ray during the surgery and like kind of, but yeah, it was kind of like this feeling of sadness. Like I can't help my friend through this and they're doing this during the pandemic and it's hard. Um, And then another aspect for Ray is that Ray was sort of in a place where they're such an amazing writer but they weren't writing. Um, I think they were going through so much at that moment and they weren't producing writing in that summer and talking to Ray is like so entertaining and they're so smart. And you're kind of like, you know, they're a writer. So you're just like, Oh, like you want them to be writing and that that humans aren't like that. They can't always do it. Um, so uh, I just thought, well, I can't, can I just, when I talk to them, they're so just the, texture and thought the thoughts they have everything I just like want want them so if they're not writing for themselves right now is there a way that I could film them you know film them by recording them film them by putting them in the book that would um that would be their voice in this moment when they're not you know putting their voice out themselves right now um so that was like an idea and then it's just so fun to talk to them and we were like I don't know. I just like, I'm like an indie author. I have no idea if my next book is ever going to get published. It all feels like really miraculous and strange that something would get taken. So by the time, like, and then Dorothy picked up the I like sent it in kind of quickly and then they just like wrote me back. And all of a sudden it was happening. And I was like, Ray, remember that fun thing we did over zoom? (laughs) And then it became like a huge deal because they were like talking about their transition. And there's like, politics and things you have to think about about like trans representation and and then in the book they're like much that's like more like settled but then in reality that summer like I don't know like Ray wasn't even using the name Ray at that point like it was just sort of like more um like it was more of a between state but then it's like well do you want to capture that between state or what do you want to do with it like it just became a lot of conversation Mm -hmm. about how to do this but I think our one, um, our governing principle was that the, um, well, the governing principle really was that Ray ultimately thought, I want this story, my story, to be in your book. I want it to live here, and this is the this is like a this is the right place for this story to live. But it was like you know I had to like there was a lot of collaboration and a lot of like how can is it right for me to hold you in this space? How can I hold you in this space? How do we do it? I mean, there was there was like a lot of conversation, which was like a real gift. I mean, it was just like...
0: Yeah. Well, while we're here, since we have so many listeners who are also writers and art makers, and you're mentioning like real life consequences of, of real story appearing transcribed within your fiction I, you've also mentioned that's as i've alluded to that originally you were thinking of spain as autofiction, and then rescue press asked if anything was untrue within it and you said no so they marketed it as as non-fiction but i know that sometimes has consequences i've had several guests on whose non-fiction have, have had to do with abuse um i think of one where the uh the person involved was well known and very disguised in the book, and another um, who was under a non disclosure agreement around what they could and couldn't say. I mean, these were the conversations that were happening, you know, with the person off air, essentially. Um, but then I also think of, like, um, I don't know if you know Sophia Shalmayev. But her book, Mother Winter, which also has A Father and Abuse, and she wanted, like you, for instance, to have her book be called Autofiction, and it was pushed towards the memoir category as a mar- marketing impulse, I think. I'm not 100% sure. But it created all sorts of nightmarish, real-world consequences for her.
1: Uh, oh. the, the
0: legal department having her approach her dad to read parts for approval, for instance. Um I, I just wondered if there was anything I mean, maybe there would be less simply because this book is fiction. Um was there were there any other unforeseen consequences to um the ways so much people in your real life um manifest in sort of these alternate forms in your book?
1: Yeah. Um, and that's such a big question. And yeah, I didn't know that that there was a lot of kind of consequence for Sophia in that. Um, but uh, yeah, and I just, oh my God, students are like constantly thinking about that too, right? Like they're like <laughs> newly out of their homes and they're like, what should I do about all of this? <laughs> it's such a big question for a writer. Um, I have like, and this is like in all of my books, I talk about people, um, I, have like a, I have different thoughts for different people. Like some people get a certain treatment in my books that other people don't. Like in Spain, for example, no part of Spain wasn't completely vetted by my friend, Kristen, who appears in a large part of it mm. and nothing she want, didn't want in it touched the book. You know, um, I don't know. My friendship with her is very holy to me. And I didn't care about the reason, her reasoning or I didn't want to have a conversation about it. I just wanted to like kind of bow down to the holiness of um, our friendship. Um, so there are people like that, that I just have like kind of an, there's like something so ultimate and I don't mess with it or I do, I guess, but then I, I, I do and I don't. Um, And then there are people who I would never consult in a million years and they have no say whatsoever. And it's just, there's a sliding scale yeah. because I have to, I have to believe that I, my, I can have my story. I mean, and for me, it's like all this stuff happened and it was hard. Like, give me my story. Like, that's like something I can get out of this. So, and I don't, I don't mean that in like crap. It sounds crass to say it that way, but I mean, I mean it in a really you know, give me the flame of this story because it's mine. Um, With this book, more than any of my other books, I have been tender and concerned about what will happen. Um, Because even though I think I did write it as an act of revenge, I do actually have a lot of compassion for all actors in the book, all people in the book. Um, even that was an interesting part of my conversation with Sheila, where she was like talking about like the museum people's being kind of evil. And I was like, oh, I liked them. Like, I don't <laughs> really have, um, I don't know. I mean, I have a lot of, I have anger and disappointments, or like, I don't know, but I don't know if I have disdain weirdly and, but I wouldn't like necessarily expect people yeah, like as a writer, you can't expect people to read anything the way that you wrote it. Like that would just be ridiculous. That's not what, that's not the, that's not the arrangement. Um, so I guess for me personally, I had to decide who was it important for me to honor with contact about this and who wasn't for whatever reason. Um, and Ultimately, I had phone conversations back-to-back on one very tender day with both my mom and my sister, in which I told them the book was coming out, and I tried to be very transparent with them about what it was about. I didn't use language like, it's my fictionalization, and I go into a fantastical space. I tried to say this was me grappling with this and it's not, it's not pretty. That's what I, I tried to be honest with them. Yeah. And I, I, something amazing happened because they didn't talk, confer with each other between this. I called them back to back and they both said the exact same thing when I told them, like I kind of started, I said, I wrote about these letters. I wrote about what happened after the letters. I wrote about myself as a scapegoat in our family, you know, whatever I said. And they both said the exact same thing. Those, those motherfuckers, <laughs> they both said, did it help you? And I said, yeah, it did. I'm sorry, I'm going to cry. But they said, we're so glad. They said, I'm so glad. Sorry, it's just so, oof. <laughs> they got me. And I don't have a perfect relationship with my mom and my sister, you know? We've had some hard times in this past couple of years um, and they both said the exact same thing. And it really meant a lot to me and I didn't expect it. Not because I, I didn't know what to expect. I really didn't, like, what does anybody say? Like, this is not a very common situation or like, I don't know, like, what are they gonna say? I have no idea. So I didn't know what to expect at all. And then they both came back with the same thing. And, you know, and then I talked to them more about it and told them, I didn't really want to murder you. That part was a horror, a yeah. horror pastiche, you know? But I tried to be honest about that. I said, this one will be hard to read. And, yeah. I, you know, I tried to be honest about it. And, and it was hard, you know, I had to tell my mom, you know, in this book, you're dead. Um, Wow! I don't know. There was a (laughs) lot,
0: but it's a testament to however complicated your relationship is with your mom and your sister that you could have those conversations with her, with them.
1: To me, that's the mark of love in a family when people want the best for you. Yeah, and it's really scary in a family when you start to feel that somebody doesn't want the best for you. That's a really terrifying moment. Um, but with these two family members, they wanted the best for me, and and I wasn't even though I didn't know how they'd react. I mean, that is that is something that's not surprising, actually, considering that they I, I know that they want the best for me. Now, when the book comes out and they read it, I don't know if that will alter their feeling or if they will, you know, react in some different way. I, I have no idea. Um, but I was incredibly touched by those conversations. I And I have to say that my... It's like a fort Dow kind of thing. Like my ability to fling this shit at them and for them to say, okay, has made me like kind of adore them. <laughs> like it's really been reparative for me, like that specific kind of like that specific figure of, of this happening. So I'm, I don't know if it will hold, you know, if, if they, as they read it, I, I have no idea, but I was very touched by those conversations. And I'm glad that I had them, but I don't always, I don't think I have to go report it to everybody. I, you know, it's, it depends.
0: I was hoping maybe I was hoping maybe we could hear a little bit from the new Mm -hmm. book. I picked out a scene. I don't know if this scene is one of the transcribed scenes or not. So you can tell me, but I was wondering if you'd be willing to read uh, from the line break on 72 to the line break on 75.
1: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So Caroline's language is my partner, um, John Paul's language in this section. Okay. Um, we had a zingy morning where he told me all kinds of things he thinks about the family and I recorded them and made them the thoughts of this mad woman. <laughs> <laughs> so okay. when Caroline is speaking, you should think about, about John Paul. Okay. It's not clear, said Caroline, that the command to have a family is any different than the command to kill your family. She'd changed. She was getting down to some sort of business. We were in a kitchen in the basement. They did their living either underneath or above the museum, even though it was only such a thing for a month, God knows why. This kitchen was large, white modernist with a wide refrigerator that looked like a convincing part of the cabinetry. When Caroline opened it, a pink light, like that which dawns on a fuchsia incline in a James Turrell room, artist of colored lights, appeared and she explained, James is a friend. She took out eggs, tahini, lemons, and bacon from what seemed a refrigerating sunset. She took out some champagne. To working with us, to the heart-stepping cows of Sachsenhausen, we toasted. It was not even 9 a.m. The command to have a family is not different than the command to kill your family. Caroline tried to explain this concept. If you can imagine, Vivitrix, we are always so horrified when we hear about, we are necessarily horrified when we hear about fathers or estranged fathers or let's say these persons who are occupying the position of the father. They are carrying the intensity. They are carrying the symbolic unity of the family in all of its ambivalence. And then they destroy their families. These fathers slaughter their families. They murder their families. It does seem to pop up in the news quite often, not in the main headlines in the New York Times or LA Times or like that, but somewhere in the slew of freakish events reported online, this story, a father kills everyone is very persistent. There's an equivalent of this, of course, in maternal psychosis. This is Caroline speaking again. Um, It's only that it seems to me that at the same time as we are saying have the family and therefore reconstitute the universe, we are also saying murder the family and break from the universe because you can't do it and it's too much. Those two things kind of come together and it feels to me that in the arc of American civilization at this moment, We've never been more openly ambivalent about those things such that the ethos of care and the ethos of abuse begin humming together and producing a third harmony that is reducible, perhaps neither to the family nor to murder, but might be opening on a generalized psychosis of the social field. Caroline was doing a maddeningly slow scramble, very French, on her eggs. She had set the heat to so low, Bouvard and Pécouche twitched. The eggs were not even halfway toward a soft curd. I was upset. My stomach shook from hunger. My poor stomach was to become, at this rate of egg cookery sprung by pain, a whole other character in this story of revenge, the revenge of the scapegoat. Caroline continued to explain. So whatever the family is, Vivitrix, I think it is a place that begins to produce a kind of separating harmonic. We can no longer be together in the mode of the family or in order to do so when we do enter into it, everyone acknowledges at some level that it's basically unbearable, right? There's something so crazy about it. A person's daily life will become perfumed with this language. I love it, but they make me crazy. I love it, but I can't do it. I love it, but I'm completely exhausted all of the time. So you're forced to say both things, that you love it more than anything, but that it's killing you. That is the degree zero of being in it. Many things are like that, of course. You talk about the father and mother. What about the murderous child in the family? You see that a lot. And I can personally think of a few times when I wanted to kill everyone in my family. Of course, I wanted to kill myself too. I was remembering specifically what Kenneth once did to a
0: box. I've been listening to Karen Balin read from Revenge of the Scapegoat. So your dad also sent you something else other than your yeah. letters. Um, he, he sent you a play that you wrote called Billy the Id. Um, I'm curious of your theories about why he, he returns this play to you, but it becomes a chapter in the book, a chapter called Billy the Id, which adds another level of scaffolding or artifice to the book in this way that you, which is very weird and uncanny because it's becoming a scaffolding or an artifice by introducing another, in a way, another real document that you did receive in your real life. Um, But I'd love to hear anything you'd wanted to share about Billy the Id (laughs) and what it's doing in Revenge of the Scapegoat in your mind.
1: Yeah, I mean, Billy the Id is half of a play that I wrote when I was 17 on a legal pad that showed up in this package that my dad sent me. And I think he just sent me a package because he was genuinely clearing out some drawers in the house and he didn't look through any of it. Um, And so this play was just part of this, like, stack of things he sent me. Um, And Billy the Id is pretty entertaining. (laughs) And and I just, I love my teenage self so much uh, for the night. Um, But I wanted to, you know, write a play that was the embodiment of the id and Billy the id is very id-like. And um, I, yeah, I kind of feel like with this novel and probably everybody feels this way about their novel, but like there's so many different origin stories to one novel. But one kind of like direct one is that during the pandemic, I had a group of friends that I was sort of getting everybody together on Zoom to do play readings. Uh, which we did initially to um, mark the passing of Terence McNally who passed from COVID really early in the pandemic. And we read um, his play, Love, Valor, Compassion. And um, everybody had a lot of fun. And so we'd get together again and we'd read like the cherry tree and stuff. And it was a good thing to do in the early days of the pandemic. Um, and then I got this thing and I said, do people want to put it on? And they were so game. And it was one of the funniest times um, I've ever had. Um, My friend, Kristen, who appears in Spain, um, she was assigned the role of Billy the Id and tears were just rolling down her face. I mean, everybody was just so amused. (laughs) And Ray, who was also, I forget what role Ray played. I don't know what they played. But anyway, Ray was like, Ray is like my booster. Like Ray is like always um, so wonderfully boosting of me. Like it's an amazing service that a friend and a writing friend can do for you. It's like an amazing thing in life. And Ray was like, Karen, you're a genius. You were a genius then. And you need to finish this play. It's perfect. Like, just like completely like, I just, that's friendship. Um, But I thought, I want to finish the play for Ray. And then I was like, but I don't write plays anymore. So I'll just write a novel. That's like the completion of Billy the id. And so, yeah, that's why the character is named Iris, because when I was 17, I named the character, this character, Iris, Um, Iris is married to somebody named Joe because Billy the id has a structure where Joe is Iris's husband so, yeah, I'm saying as much as I may I let Boubard and Pécuchet and like Flaubert's novel ruled the plot of the novel, Billy the Id kind of rules the plot of the novel too. when I was seventeen, I wrote this play, Billy the Id, and it's about a married couple, Iris and Joe, and they are trying to sell their house, which I think I must have been writing because when I was a kid, we tried my parents were trying to sell our house for like multiple years, so <laughs> it's just like writing a play about it and um. I just that that's like the plot in the beginning of Revenge is that Iris and Joe are trying to sell this unsellable house and I don't know. So, oh,
0: wow.
1: yeah, I just sort that's of, cool. I love to let other things dictate how I, I don't want to think of plot because who cares? Um, so that kind of dictated it, but then I just thought it would be so like, I humiliate myself by, by like putting these letters in the book in some sense in the sense that it was like such a stake for me, like an emotional, horrific stake, as we, as we said, but then this was a different stake of just like, just self-deprecation, you know, 17 year old Karen Balin, who went at the time as Corinne um, Really? <laughs> oh, I was so, I was so 17, you know? I love that. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, Um I just wanted, like, I love self-deprecation, or yeah, which is perhaps very Jewish of me, or whatever. But um, this was a different form of uh, laughing at myself, making fun.
0: This is going to be a. This is going to be a, a maybe a weirdly oblique question, but part of the li- The later sections take place at a residency on a farm, where one of the buildings was the past home of an officer who used to manage the work at a concentration camp. And your, your work often has these institutional settings, hospitals, residencies, schools, almost as if there are other iterations of systems like families that need to be interrogated. You know, Maybe family trauma, body trauma, inherited trauma, institutional trauma are all enmeshed. But there's another thing that also that's interesting that goes across your work. I'm just going to, again... Sheila who's haunting this interview is going to I'm going to borrow her words where she says you do something in your writing that I find very interesting which makes me both constantly aware that I am reading the work of someone's imagination and also aware aware of how the world itself is a work of imagination you take these images milk bees honey cows feet and kind of smear them across the text as a whole, so they appear all the way through it, but bearing different meanings, depending over which scenes these images are smeared. It's like smearing a streak of red over a painting, but instead you're smearing cows. Here they are in a field. Here they are sitting on the narrator's feet. Here they are in a concentration camp. It really makes it clear the way the imagination just imprints itself on everything. So thinking of that, and then I'm also going to do a weird juxtaposition. You have this book review you did at full stop of a romance novel called Fires of of Siberia. And in it, you say, Teaching creative writing, my largest fear is fantasy. Besides regular pre-teaching nightmares about rape and coercion, about being bound and stapled to the whiteboard, I dream the night before class about fantasy. Not of worlds or dimensions or the kinds of characters who have corresponding powers of maps, but of students, my students, telling me that they'll be writing it, that they'll be, <laughs> that they'll be turning it in. So I guess I, I want to hear about, as you mentioned earlier, the heart-stomping cows or the talking feet and the way you smear them in, in Revenge of the Scapegoat. But I want to hear about the the cows and the feet, which seem fantastical to me um, in relationship to this perhaps past fear, perhaps present fear of fantasy. Um, talk to us about the smearing and also the what I would call a fantastical effect from the smearing.
1: Mm. Yeah. Well, I will say you jog really deep with that full stop <laughs> review because I wrote that probably in like 2010 or something or
0: it's so funny
1: oh my god well that was for this review of this romance novel by my friend trey that was like i felt like it was like real i was like oh you can do anything in any form um which is cool but um i mean i think my impulse toward fantasy or speculation which I think, especially in like the University of Pennsylvania, there's quite a lot of that there too. Um, I mean, it has to do with that. This is actually how I feel it. Like how I I feel too much as we've been talking about. And so in order to describe the feeling of it, I would need to go beyond beyond what is in like a normal limit. Um, So, in the University of Pennsylvania, um, I feel like uh, my my period's really heavy. <laughs> I guess I'll write a book about a person who, and I feel, and I love you having, uh, when you talk, okay, let's just fully get Sheila really on the table here in all instances, but I love your conversation with her that you had around motherhood, where she really, you know, that book is like, the big topic is about, will I become a mother, you know? Um, But then in your interview with her, you really bring out um, how much that book is about, like cycle, the menstrual cycle. And um, anyway, this is, yeah, but anyway, you know, by the end of um, University of Pennsylvania, menstrual blood has like flooded the University of Pennsylvania, um, which I suppose I want to flood institutions of higher learning with menstrual blood. But um, but that's also how it kind of feels sometimes to be in a lecture if you're like having a heavy period. So it just felt like the right thing to say. Um, and then just like with the cows, the heart stamping cows, that comes from like a real feeling of tenderness and intensity that I felt like step on my heart. My heart is this ready to be stepped on. Um, in order to explain myself to myself, I had to say, "Get a cow up here because I can take it." Like that's that's how I felt. So um, it's just a matter of not dealing in metaphor, um, you know. And um, something that I've, I I feel like I cite this a lot in like different <laughs> interviews, but it really is like the lasting kernel of my like doctoral education is the Vitae sentence, the sun is an anus. That sentence means everything to me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, If you can say that, then you can say anything. And, um, you know, power to the copula and power to the verb to be and power to just saying things and making them so. And um, so I like that. Um, It's so confident. It's so confident to not say like, to say is right, Um, to force something, to force the connection. Um, So I like that a lot. Um, Yeah, and like my teenage feelings are so big that there needs to be like cows and stomping on you and stuff. Um, I don't, uh, I probably do still have a lot of fear about my students' interests in fantasy writing, Um, which is, you know, I think that for me, I, I don't relate as a writer to the idea of world building. And I don't relate to the idea of assigning traits to characters, as I say, in Revenge of the Scapegoat, don't bother writing a character because people change. Um, It feels really, I don't know, sometimes in these like fantasy creations, like somebody is stubborn and then that like rules how things happen, but I don't know. Like if you take a stubborn person and you torture them, they might change like I this is like the sickness of my mind like this is like the, a mind of somebody who's like in a lineage of like genocide which is most people on this earth like things change um so this idea of like will her stubbornness how will her stubbornness would she have to work with her stubbornness like I just don't get it like this like I'm more interested in writing about institutions or about big like that's like the thing that is the character to me more than, yeah. um, Oh, I was just uh, reading, I've been watching the films of Carl Dreyer. And, um, oh, are you? Yeah. um, And I was reading some work about him and um, it was, um, characters were described in his work as being an epiphenomena, um, epiphenomenal to the style. Um, Maybe my characters feel epiphenomenal to the institution or to like, uh, like a larger historical order or something. Um,
0: do you have a favorite dryer film?
1: Um, I just watched Vampire, which I adored. Oh, Do you?
0: I like that movie a lot. Um, I don't think I've seen one that I haven't really liked, or Death's probably my favorite, though.
1: Okay. Yeah, you, I haven't seen it yet. If you haven't. I'm, just, I'm dipping in right now. All right. I will watch that.
0: Sorry to derail you. About the epiphenomenal.
1: Yeah, I mean, and then I just feel like fantasy worlds are often like very—they um, lean toward monarchy, and I just don't like that. I don't, I don't want to have faith in kings and queens and these sorts of rulers and systems. So I don't—I just feel like they're kind of like it's like potentially like a fascist form. <laughs> I just like I'm really skeptical about it and then I will say
0: but there's subversive fantasy like I think fairy tale I think is a very subversive form of fantasy um, often
1: that is so true Um, I think that I just sort of like I'm really talking about like mass market fantasy fiction that sometimes um, or like yeah like yeah I think that's that's like what I'm really referring to as far as like something that like students will sometimes come in the classroom wanting to emulate. But um, I will also say, and I think this comes through in Revenge of the Scapegoat. This was a big top like point, dare I say plot point for me in Revenge of the Scapegoat, which is Iris is a teacher and anything she thinks about her students is completely wrong and they completely change her and surprise her and derail her and humiliate her and humble her and are bigger than her and weirder than her in like every way. So i have like my stodginesses, but um like my practice and like my teaching life is to just become completely like humiliated by my students and they are wonderful at doing so because they're they're every they're you know you can't yeah you can't put what they're doing in, in that kind of box actually
0: well at the beginning, you you said when you were considering these four books, a quartet. Part of it was a desire to move on to something else or to grow towards something else. Do you have a sense of that something else? Having finished this book, um, are you, Is there something? Is there an urge or a vision or a gesture or a kernel for something new that feels like you're departing?
1: Yeah, I have like a new manuscript. <laughs> I wrote another novel um, that was a total departure for me. So, well, I shouldn't say that. It's not, but it is not part of this quartet. It does not feature myself or my family in any way. It's um, It has a completely different kind of um, thing. But I think that the through line is that it's a novel that's about medical injustice, mm-hmm. which I'm obviously interested in. Mm-hmm can't wait yeah yeah um i'm trying to think of something else to say about it but i've been really um following the um all of the completely alarming news about the crimes of gynecologists and particularly people who steal people's uteruses um for profit or for you know racialized reasons and i was teaching this narrative medicine class with and my, with my students, and I was talking with them about, how can we write about this? And my students, many of, many of my students, and this is like, my students are amazing at derailing me, you know, like, it's so good. But they said, it's not fiction's job to talk about this. Like, the journalists need to go in right now. Like, there's an ordering to who talks about this and when. Um, we don't need to aestheticize this moment, right? And I was really compelled by them. And then I just like wrote a novel about it, um, but I was very compelled by them, yeah. and it completely like made me think about like how can I do it? Like it just made me want to think about like how, what is it, what would a novel be to this to this situation that apparently um, there are gynecologists all across this country who are being exposed to be doing all kinds of things that are. Um, incredibly deleterious so I yeah I wrote a novel that is like a crisis point about this profession and um yeah I don't know if I did it right but I I kind of was like I want to like think about how like what the what the role of the novel could be in this
0: That's exciting thank you for for spending the time with me today Karen
1: thank you so much what a talk it's been a pleasure
0: We've been talking today to Karen Balin about her latest book from Dorothy, Revenge of the Scapegoat. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David and your host. Today's program was recorded at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored full-strength makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. More of Karen's work can be found at karenbalen.com. For the bonus audio, Karen talks about and gives an extended and very charming and funny reading from Flaubert's final unfinished novel, Bouvard and Pecochet. We also have five copies of Blackfishing the IUD, signed by Karen, and unbelievably, the entire back catalog of Dorothy books available. So if you enjoyed today's conversation, help ensure the future of conversations just like this by joining the community of Between the Covers listener supporters at patreon.com slash between the covers. Or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so by PayPal at tinhouse.com support like to thank the tin house team elizabeth DeMeo and elisa ogie in the book division jacob valla in the art department becky kramer in publicity and lance cleland the director of the summer and winter tin house writers workshops finally i'd like to thank emre lodbrog and barbara browning for creating the outro their album emre lodbrog a sapatita me can be found on itunes and barbara browning's trove ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning.